everyone and welcome to episode 165 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke and it's been a while. How you been? I hope that everything is good out there for all the loyal listeners uh, and I'm hoping also that it won't be that long before the oaken table that I'm sat at by myself today is sanitised. But before that... I'm very, very happy to announce that we are returning this week and next to the history of the WWF series, the WWF in 1991, that we began at the end of last year, is returning today. I will be joined by Kyle Ross of the Top Rope Nation podcast to discuss everything, everything, everything about July and August of 1991 in the WWF. There are so many huge stories to talk about here. We've broken this into two podcasts. Part 3A today uh, will cover the steroid uh, fallout after the, the conviction of Dr. George Zahorian. Uh, the, 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 the fact that WF is under fire, Vince McMahon's response, Hulk Hogan goes on Arsenio Hall, everything that takes place on that side of things, as well as looking at the top angles in the WWF, heading into SummerSlam 1991 and the departure and everything that leads up to it of the Ultimate Warrior, as well as giving a bit of a final summation on, uh, on the theory that we had at the beginning, probably about this time last year when we did the 1990 series, uh, talking about whether Hulk Hogan and his, uh, his passing the torch to the Warrior was as much of a failure as has been kind of painted historically speaking. Next week, part 3B, it's going to be Ric Flair's departure from WCW as he arrives in the World Wrestling Federation. Obviously, his arrival is actually in September, as well as the rest of the card for SummerSlam 1991 and all the angles and everything that led up to it. So that's coming up next week, a combined five hours plus, talking about July and August of 1991 with Kyle Ross. So much to talk about, so many huge stories. And there's no point wasting any time. So we're going to get straight to it now. We hope you enjoy part 3A of our series covering the WWF in 1991. I'm going to throw it now to my conversation with Kyle Ross. Hope you enjoy. Joining me at this time from across the pond, returning to Squared Circle Gazette Radio by way of the Top Rope Nation podcast, the great Kyle Ross returning to our series on 1991 part 3A today that we're covering Kyle and I was just saying before we got started here how excited I was to get back on the mics with you it's been a long time since we've been talking 1991 I hope this is as fresh in the memory for you as uh, as it's been for me at least this last couple of weeks revising uh, July and August of 91 uh how you feeling about this one man Woo boy is this a monster uh, I approached this not uh much differently I've approached the college report I think quite frankly uh the notes are just very long very detailed. This may be the craziest two months in WWF history, certainly up until this point, I think, uh, that argument could be made. And, you know, as far as uh, getting excited to be back on the phone with you or back uh, record with you, hey, two times in four days. This is I it. know we this haven't talked it. about 1991 in a while, but, hey, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about the book and Brian Pillman and the documentary. So, uh, yeah, let's make it a regular thing. That's it, man. That's it. Uh, for those of you who have not obviously been following along so far, you can go back to the archives at squaredcirclegazette.podbean.com, uh, Podbean, iTunes, wherever you can find this show. And previously, for those who were kind of jumping in a little bit late, on this series, obviously, we've been covering from January up to the end of June, and obviously covering the in-depth uh, aspects of the controversy surrounding Sergeant Slaughter, uh, the angle with Saddam Hussein, the Persian Gulf War, which was used to obviously elicit heat, and the rather horrendous media fallout of that move and i know carly had a note that you wanted to add here uh kind of a bit of an extra take to kind of wrap that part up yeah so it's been several months since we've recorded uh for this series and during that time bruce pritchard over at his podcast something to wrestle with uh talked about the main event 
from February of 91, which we talked about in, I believe, part 1A of our mm-hmm. series. Yeah. And, you know, obviously Sergeant Slaughter, it wasn't good at the time, and it's aged even worse, I would say. <laughs> uh, we're not done with it, folks. We're going to still be talking about that uh, character hey. here today. But Bruce was asked whether or not, you know, hindsight being 2020, they would do the angle over again with Slaughter being an Iraqi sympathizer. And I wanted to read this because, you know, I think the important part was kind of buried here. So, so let me just read the quote. All right. Pritchard says, quote, first of all, having to do it all over again and hindsight being 2020, we wouldn't have done it. It was timely and in many ways formulaic in how we had presented storylines before, mirroring what was going on in the world and being able to take conflict in the world and bring conflict into the ring in a storyline that would hopefully make sense. Who could forget Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and its uh, real-world events that it mirrored? But <laughs> anyway, uh, but Bruce goes on to say, this was probably just a little too soon and a little too close to home. I don't think anyone ever really thought until that weekend since my change in tone as a reason, mm. <laughs> that we were ever going to have a full conflict and go to war. There was conflict and everybody was, wa- everybody was watching what was going on in Iraq, but you hear this shit all the time and there's no big major war. This one turned into that major war that people hadn't been a part of in many, many years. I think it just affected the psyche of the country, end quote. So I bring this up because, Liam, you and I went through – Uh, We're one of the few podcasts, I believe, that went to the U.N. website and offered a detailed timeline right from there. We ripped it. And it was known well before uh, that weekend in January that there could be a major war. I mean, there was a a the timeline. The first one was November, I believe. Yeah. You go back and check. So, um, you know, Bruce, while, you know predictably, and I, what, what choices he have at this point, saying, yeah, we would do that again, still kind of clinging to <laughs> that uh, false defense. Oh, we didn't know. I mean, you know, it just blew up in our face. And I think, you know, people listen to us and might also be something to wrestle with fans. I think it's important to know that Bruce is still lying. <laughs> For those who don't know, there was a deadline that they mentioned on their show repeatedly in the build-up to the Royal Rumble. So yes, not to mention that, yeah, when the warrior was like demanding surrender from Saddam Hussein. <laughs> Oops, he didn't accept it. Oh, we didn't know. Come on, man. Yeah, well, you know, you hear it all the time, though, Kyle. You know, I mean, it's just this, happen- this kind of shit happens every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Obviously, that was the first controversy WWF dealt with in 1991. Uh, the, the fallout and, and, you know, of Sergeant Slaughter and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, exploiting a war. I was searching. I couldn't. Exploiting was, was mm. on the tip of my tongue. I couldn't speak it, however, but I uh, got it out, thankfully. Uh, the second controversy that we talked about, Liam, and I think we should rehash this before we get into Part 3A proper, was the fallout from the George Zahorian verdict. Yes, the obviously at uh, the first half of 1991, the indictment, trial, and conviction of a uh, Dr. George Horian, a urologist from Pennsylvania, and basically, as the situation was, there was a lot of talk about steroids in the media at the time, and it would continue. There was obviously the trial of Zahorian that ended in the it actually took place in like the last week of June. 
And as a result of this, there, were, there was obviously yeah, the, the point where Hulk Hogan was subpoenaed to testify, and it got quashed by Jerry McDevitt, uh, who, who, who put the word in with the judge and gave his little argument, and we'll, we'll come to this, because it, it crops back up in this two-month period of time that we're talking about. Zahorian found guilty, off he goes to the slammer for a couple of years, uh, and obviously the WWF, kind of, as we said at the end of the last show, felt like the worst was over. Hogan didn't have to testify, it's in the rearview mirror. Let's look ahead going forward. Dave Meltzer, as we talked about on the uh, on the previous episode of the series, kind of had a different take, being more media savvy and obviously dealing with media people more frequently, saying this story is not over. And boy, oh boy, is it not over. Because when I, when, as we were preparing the notes for this, Kyle, i got to be honest, I did not expect as many little tidbits and little uh, items on this subject. I kind of had the impression, too, that other than, like, Obviously, one of the major things we're going to talk about today, Hulk Hogan on Arsenio Hall, that the the, the the fallout and the aftermath of that trial wasn't going to be as, as quite as severe as it was. And uh, this is going to be fun, man. We've got, we got a lot of little things to get to here and talk about, yes. again, like two two things in a row, like the, 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 the Gulf War negativity. And again, this, this ultimately ties back to, to the 1990 series that we did where we, we discussed, you know, the fact they went so hard on Slaughter may, may have been... Part of the reason why the media kind of was kind of had like an eye out for them anyway, because they kind of already riled up a lot of media personalities with that whole, you know, the Gulf War exploitation. Here we are now with another big controversy, and boy, does it get some coverage. Yeah, it gets pretty ugly, uh, and this leads, of course, to the decline of pro wrestling's popularity in this country uh, for, you know, basically six years. Or five. I think five would be more fair assessment. It bounced back starting in 96. Yeah, but w- yeah, WWF specifically, they, you know, they, for, for them personally, I mean, it didn't. Yeah, you put your know, sixties is probably pretty much on the money. That's true. You're right. I mean, with the money that war, it was WCW that experienced uh, the resurgence kind of first mm. uh, due to the NWO. You're right. So um, yeah, it's we're we're about to get into some dark times for Titan Sports. <laughs> and why wait anymore? Let's dive straight into it here. Obviously, steroids is the first topic of discussion. We will be talking about the main event of SummerSlam, obviously, a little bit later on, but we're going to get to the steroid stuff first. Uh, as previously, a lot of the notes that we're going to read are from uh, Dave Meltzer and the Wrestling Observer Newsletters of the time. So, we'll uh, tip the cap there to Uncle Dave. Uh, let's start first Thanks, with... Yes, absolutely. Let's start first with television pieces on pro wrestling's steroid problem, airing locally in New York on the CBS affiliate. Uh, a piece that I haven't seen, but it's said to be nothing short of devastating to Hulk Hogan, says Dave. And also on the CBS National, U, uh, National News. In the New York market alone, there were articles in the Village Voice and New York Times, both by Irv Mushnick. Uh, but clearly, the strongest piece was by Phil Mushnick, uh, in Wednesday's New York Post. So uh, right out the gate, New York, the biggest media market in the country, hitting them hard. Yeah, WWE's backyard. So not to discredit Phil Mushnick on this subject. I am not his biggest fan when it comes to his view of rap music. I'd like to state that for the <laughs> record. Uh, but he was generally right uh, on this issue of steroids and what WWE was doing. Uh, this was, I believe, the start of the Mushnick-McMahon rivalry, correct? It, it was. He had been... Maybe an out, a bit of an outspoken cricket, or he just had no regard for pro wrestling, I think. But this mm. is when he really started to hammer them in the paper. And, you know, I mean, obviously that went on for years and years, uh, even into this century. So uh, just a little bit of clarification for those who may not know. I assume a lot of folks, a lot of sharp fans that we have on this podcast do know this. But just to clarify for everybody, Phil Mushnick, not to be confused with Irv Mushnick, who was the nephew of Sam Mushnick, the legendary promoter out of St. Louis. Yes. Uh, no, no connection. 
No, no connection whatsoever. It just so happens that they have very similar last names, uh, not spelled the same, M-U-S-H-N-I-C-K versus M-U-C-H-N-I-C-K. Uh, and at this point, you got to think that Vince was probably wishing he was still feuding with Sam as the territory is a lot easier to deal with than the media, as we're about ready to find out. <laughs> the Times piece, which is entitled, Is Pro Wrestling Down for the Count? Oh, yeah. Uh, was most damaging with it running the photo of Vincent Mann and Hogan smiling and flanking George Zahorian and almost writing an obituary of the wrestling resurgence. Okay, so as far as this article goes, the photo that you just mentioned, probably more damaging than any quote. I don't think we have any specific quotes from the article, but mm. the photo itself uh, that was in the Times, I believe was the same one that Zahorian's attorney showed during his closing argument, which if folks remember back to our last show, to be uh, is what got Hulk Hogan's name, you know, kind of in the mud again, so to speak. Yeah, uh, and this is the picture that we're going to post by the time this airs. We'll be posting this picture. We have it on the uh, on the SCG Facebook page. Yeah, like you say, and you made it here. It's, it's kind of a kind of hard to make it out like they were just kind of casual acquaintances here when you see this. They look thick as thieves. Yeah, it's, it's not like, you know, Zahori just ran up to them and take a photo. It was clear that this was a friendly photo taken. So, um, you know, and it turns out, uh, you know, doing my research for this, that Zahorian really thought he was buddy-buddy with Hulk. Oh, of course. And some of the stuff Hulk's going to say about that, you know, denying their closeness or any kind of friendship is going to bite him in the ass. Oh, man. Oh, there, 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 are, there are multiple Hulk Hogan comments that come back to bite me in the ass this two-month period, and I can't wait. Happier times for all three, I wrote down in this picture. <laughs> yes, yes. Needless to say, if they had been photographed in July of 91, no one would have been smiling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, put, you also you have to airbrush the bars out in, in Zahorian's case. But Yes, uh, that's also true. You're right, I think. <laughs> I don't think he would have been, they would have been able to visit him simultaneously, but oh well. <laughs> No, uh, two years ago, Dave says, nobody in the mainstream media said a word about steroids in the WWF. But the point covered in columns on Friday by Phil Mushnick in the New York Post, uh, Robert Lipsight of the New York Times, and Saturday by Bernie McLaz of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which was that wrestling stars are being marketed as superheroes primarily to an audience of young children, put the story in yet a new light. Also, the superheroes are using a drug that has become almost an epidemic amongst high schoolers. And this is this is key. Yeah, so in the notes here, I underlined part of what you just read. I think we should reread that because it's for those who are unfamiliar with the situation, it's really what I think got this story to stick. Yeah, and for obviously us in the UK, this is probably a good way to illustrate the uh, the impact here. That wrestling stars are being marketed as superheroes primarily to an audience of young children. Uh, and not only that, obviously, but there, there's, there's wider cultural issues with steroids in America at this time. Yes, uh, going on in the NFL, obviously, Lyle Alzado. So that's just another reason that you can tie the WWF into this broader issue. The article in the Post-Dispatch obviously mentions the epidemic among high schoolers. But, you know, this was – had steroids been a pro-wrestling-only issue, the majority of the media would have turned its nose up probably at it. I, I, I agree completely. Yeah, but because you've got issues with – High school kids, the NFL, which, you know, is obviously, you know, one of the most popular things over here in America. Uh, WWE is going to be guilty by association. And, you know, of course, as we're going to get into in the coming months, you know, the steroid problem in this industry was far worse than, like, anywhere. Yeah. Ever, 
in the history of the world. <laughs> and for those who don't know much about Lyle Alzado, former NFL player who actually the first week, was the first week? July 8th, I've actually got it written down here, was on the cover of Sports Illustrated saying he lied about his steroid and HGH use, that he was a massive user and, and his belief that it caused his brain cancer that would inevitably lead to his death in I2. Um, whether that's true or not, there's, there's really no way to tell, but that was his belief. Um, and, and he'd been on Arsenio Hall previously as well. Yes, more on Arsenio later in this program. <laughs> kind of the star of the show, actually. Now I think about it, this this podcast. Uh, let's, from, all, let's all do the thing where we like rotate our arm, the woo woo or whatever the heck that was. <laughs> that was huge in the nineties. You can't you can't watch an episode of nineties television without somebody in the crowd doing that. I'll tell you what, I never did it, and I'm proud to say that. Yeah, that that raised the roof with the two big things. <laughs> Uh, from I, I apologize to, to everyone in the UK for America being such an embarrassment <laughs> the world. Raise the roof. <laughs> from Lipsight's column in the New York Times entitled The Cancer in Football and Pro Wrestling, which may be the only time that those two things were lumped in together in the New York Times, uh, the judge squashed a subpoena compelling Hulk Hogan to testify and dropped the charge against Zahorian that pertained to Hogan because of, quote, private and personal matters that should be protected. Other than the wrestling industry, wrote Lipsight, uh, it was not clear what needed to be protected. The estimated 250,000 to 500,000 high school students currently using steroids were not among those needing to be protected. Ouch! Yeah. Harsh words there. We should keep going because um, it gets even uglier in the St. Louis paper. It does. The strongest quotes came from Bruno San Martino in that St. Louis paper when talking about Hogan saying, here is a guy who is, to me, the phoniest guy in the history of the sport. Here is a guy who talks about saying your prayers. I doubt if he's even ever seen the inside of a church and eating your vitamins or vitamins to assume in the UK. Uh, we all know what kind of vitamins he's been on. Double ouch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, so per... Meltzer in the September 22nd, 2003 Wrestling Observer Newsletter. If you're wondering why I'm quoting that, he did kind of a nice synopsis of this time period in that. That was a period in wrestling where there wasn't a lot going on, uh, you know, compared to, say, like the 90s or today, where there's like a thousand shows to recap. So he would do all these like historical pieces, mm-hmm. Liam, as you know, like in the early aughts. So he oh, recapped. This specific part in 1991, and I used uh, got a lot of good stuff, you know, Dave writing with 12 years uh, of hindsight on the issue. And what he talked about, and this was very interesting with this article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, it was kind of credited, for lack of a better term, as doing severe damage to the big Bush Stadium show, WrestleFest 91, that we talked about in a prior episode. I think we gave the figures out. In that prior episode, but that show only did 19,000 total in attendance, 14,500 paid, which is really terrible for a baseball stadium. And would, Dave said it wouldn't have filled the market's indoor arena. Mm. Uh, the company reportedly lost $40,000 on this Bush Stadium show, uh, which at the time was being pushed as the biggest in the history of the St. Louis market. Yeah. And I guess now we got our answer because, um, our previous news item when this show was first, or this WrestleFest 91 show was first broached, was that it was going to be for a Coliseum home video. Yeah. And I think we now know why it was never released on Coliseum home video. There was a <laughs> WrestleFest 91 Coliseum home video, but it was not the St. Louis show. Um, three years prior, they ran the Milwaukee baseball stadium, kind of a comparable market, I guess, to St. Louis. And that show probably did double. That show um, in Milwaukee 
uh, when business was doing a lot better, was headlined by Hogan and Andre in a cage. Uh, that was Hogan's, I believe, first match back after WrestleMania 4. I think it's the only time he wrestled between WrestleMania and SummerSlam because he was filming No Holds Barred at the time. And then Savage and DiBiase was the world title match. So let me see if I can look this up real quick. Um, I think it was in July of 88, if memory July serves. July 31st, that's the one. July 31st. Love how you knew that either. You knew it off the tip of your tongue. You're just helping me out. <laughs> um, that show did 25,866. So not quite double, but significantly more. Significantly more. Now, I wanted to pick your brain about that because obviously, with that being credited, what do you think about that? Do you think that's the reason for the low turnout, like a, a damaging article? Because, I mean, we've been tracking this for a while now, and it wasn't like the gates were knocking them dead anyway. Now, granted, there was an awful lot of publicity and, and marking the way into the show locally, but still, you know, like, this is not a period of time where they're doing, you know, 25,000, 35,000 people ever. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've talked about whether it was, you, you know, um, mainly with WrestleMania 7, the idea that, you know, bad press or not, that they were going to, to 100,000 people in 1991 is just lunacy. <laughs> but there was another quote um, that I think Meltzer had in that September 03 Observer that I didn't put in here where the author was, like, really critical of going to the show. Like, he's oh, like, yeah, really? I'm thinking, yeah, he's like, I, I was thinking about personally attending the show, but because of all this, I'm not going, and neither should you. Oh, like, wow. It was really pretty harsh. Yeah, of course, I left that one, the juicier quote out. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was something to that effect. So, I mean, you're right. I, I don't think you could give sole uh, credit, for lack of a better term, to the article. You're right. WWE was not doing well at the houses anyway to begin with. But uh, it certainly didn't help. No, no. If it didn't hurt, it certainly didn't help. Yeah. Um, the sponsors, the WWF sponsors, particularly those aiming at kids, were in a panic. Not over the hypocrisy, says Meltzer, because anyone who understands the first thing about Freakish Physiques knew it was there from the start. The panic was over exactly what Titan, there it is again, was having a nightmare over. Not that it had a steroid problem, but that it had a PR problem that companies associated with Titan feared could spread to them too. How about that? Reacting more to being caught than the actual issue. Shades of Mickey James and the trash bag, anyone? <laughs> the more things change. This is like WWE's MO, though. Like the track record of company history is that they're, they're reactionary. It's actually, you know what, I'm going to drop in a Kim Wood quote here since I mentioned probably, I mentioned his name in our podcast earlier this week quite a bit. I'll, I'll do, I'll do the same here. I remember when Kim Wood gave me the big speech about Vince McMahon and his belief that, and this is why I guess maybe he holds him in such low regard, where he's like, Vince is not an active creative mind. He's a passive guy. He's somebody that creates an environment that is that is that makes it very hard for people to express themselves, but at the same time he's always waiting for somebody else to do something. He's he's waiting for somebody else almost always. And that's pretty much what happens in a positive way and, and certainly here in a negative way too. Yeah, not you know, the the fact that it was an issue. He's not in a bodybuilding federation, for Christ's sake. Like, you know, it's just, it's laughable. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, even when they have testing, as, as we're going to get into for steroids, mm. they're not doing that for the health of their performers. I mean, maybe there's like, you know, 5% of it is to do with that. But, you know, the lion's share is because there's all this outside pressure on them. Uh, why aren't you testing your athletes? Yeah, you know, and if that question isn't being asked by the media, there's not going to be any steroid testing. That's something that I think everybody could agree on. Uh, you know, the overall health of the performers has never been 
uh, front. So, I mean, my God, how about the touring schedule that they had these guys on for years? I mean, it's only until recently that, you know, they're willing to give guys time off for an injury if, if they're even being promoted at, you know, heavily in a big match and you've got some injury. Hey, okay. Now you, you can, you can sit out because, you know, that's what most industries would do. But, um, that's like very recent that they've, you know, shown any kind of concern, um, with the health of their performers. Wasn't there a line in, like, when Vince... I remember when Vince and Joe Divick got, like, interviewed by the government after the Benoit trials, where they outright asked him why he does a steroid policy, and he basically just... Because he was angry, just said, PR. Like, it's, it's, it's cold and calculate. Like, just he outright just said it, like, he just couldn't give a shit less, because he'd been wound up so much. Uh, that he yeah. Just, he just came out... <laughs> he, he was like, a... That's pretty damning. <laughs> he was not in a good mood that day, was he? <laughs> Man, he got fiery. Yeah, that, that's kind of why. If you wonder why Nick Khan handles all the, uh, you know, investor meetings now, I think that you know is why it's for the best. You know, Vince sometimes can insert foot in mouth. <laughs> and as it turns out, <laughs> yes, as people do uh, momentarily. Well, well, corporate, uh, corporate uh, kind of puppet for, for, for the voice of the company, Basil DeVito Jr. Uh, comes out with a press release uh, that Friday, stating, and this is great. As a responsible leader in family sports slash entertainment, the World Wrestling Federation has had the most comprehensive and enforced drug program in all of professional sports. Now, the WF program will be expanded to include the most comprehensive steroid policy as well. This innovative policy will ensure that our athletes adhere to the the highest standards in order to preserve their place as worthy role models throughout the world. (laughs) Uh, As he had to do with his... First press release on this issue, I believe we discussed that in part 2B. Uh, DeVito had to later walk this one back. So he's hitting 0 for 2 uh, with press releases uh, when it comes to the steroid issue. When questioned about the claim of the, quote, most comprehensive and enforced drug program in all of sports, DeVito would call it, quote, bad wording. That's all. That's all it is. Oh, just bad wording. You know, I just got a little excited about our steroid testing problem. Hyped it up a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> this is fascinating. And again, I got this from the O3 Observer. A little known fact, DeVito was friends with Phil Mushnick. And WWF thought they could exploit that friendship to their benefit. Did not work. <laughs> no, no, it did not. Uh, and I, I, you know what? I read that observer. I, I completely forgot that, which is hilarious because that's like a classic. You know, this would be the time when WWF would need to call in their markers, so to speak. And Phil Mushnick did them no favors. He didn't. Uh, he had no desire to invite Basil over for dinner anymore at that point. I guess they must have not been that good of friends. But I, I, that, that, how fascinating is it that they were? friends because dave's like yeah not a lot of people knew this at the time and you know i i didn't know it until i read it Uh Uh, of course basil in fairness to him i suppose is the embodiment of the company at this point to kind of flailing and bullshitting hoping they can kind of get through the comprehensive testing i think was like cocaine only which were fairly sporadic tests as i remember yes and again you talk about being reaction i think we've mentioned this previously the only reason they tested positive for cocaine was the infamous jim duggan iron sheik arrest in 87 um, when they were pulled over, uh, I can't remember where they were pulled over, maybe it was Michigan, and, and they both had drugs found on them. And, and, of course, the biggest concern from WWE's perspective was, A, they had been caught, and there had been some bad press about it, but, B, that they were feuding with each other. <laughs> I mean, I don't think the, the nasal cavity of Jim Duggan and the Iron Sheik was not a chief concern in Stamford, Connecticut, I don't think. 
No, not at all. I, if it was, yeah, you know, so, you know, that just goes back to being reactionary. The only reason they were testing for cocaine was because of that arrest, which got some bad press. And I think Jake Roberts was the only failure. <laughs> oh, imagine and, that. Oh, <laughs> more on him later. I, I lied. Tully Blanchard. Oh, of course. Yeah, Although that was kind of a bit of a dodgy one, too. That was a... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, they were trying to get him out of the locker rooms and stuff at the same time, so it was very convenient they, they tested yeah, him. Yeah, it was very convenient. Him. Yes, oh, yeah. It's like they, like, spied on him or something. Going, he just did some art and test him. <laughs> Let's get him. Let's get him right now. Uh, so, we talk about reactionary and Basil DeVito's uh, attempts at saving this. Vince himself breaks into an episode of Primetime Wrestling to give a tremendous speech. You've got this here is the July 20th superstars as well. Um... And pretty much echoes a lot of, of DeVito's sentiments. Obviously, it was the WF speak. Uh, and he also writes a piece for the Sunday Times. But this speech on television is something else. Yeah, we're going to play it here momentarily uh, in it. You will hear Vince call WF superstars, quote, role models. Again, same language used by DeVito. And then the big kicker, that's why when you see this symbol pointing to the WF logo, you can be assured of drug-free sports entertainment that you and your entire family can be proud of. I think we should just play this. Yeah, let's play it right now. It's the message, don't do drugs. We applaud their effort. However, here in the World Wrestling Federation, we have many superstars, some of whom have even become superheroes, all of whom recognize their responsibility as role models to just say no to drugs. Therefore, it should come as no surprise to you that the WWF has one of the most comprehensive drug testing education, and rehabilitation programs in all of sports. This program will now be expanded to include testing for anabolic steroids. In short, the standards of excellence the athletes in the WWF live by will become the standard bearer for all professional sports for years to come. That's why when you see this symbol, you can be assured of drug-free sports entertainment that you and your entire family can be proud of. I do not remember watching this speech in real time at all. This was something that when I was doing my prep work for the show, and I saw it in your notes, I also saw it on historyofwb.com, uh, their recaps of the various superstars. I was like, what? This was on television? And I think... And this goes back to your surprise with the amount of bad press the WWF was getting here. I'm almost an 11-year-old. I'm 10 still in July. I turned 11 in August of 91. But I don't think I knew or comprehended what was going on at the time yet. Mm, okay. You know, and so, like, Vince McMahon coming on TV and saying, you know, this is going to be steroid-free programming. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Well, why is he saying that? You know, I guess that's, you know, a good, I, I, okay, cool. But, you know, I, I don't think I was aware yet of what was going on. Um, you know, I had talked about previously with the uh, exploitation of the Iraq war. I was actually aware of that. There was an article that I had seen in our local paper here in Cleveland, the Plain Dealer, that, uh, yeah. you know, Meltzer had reprinted in the Observer. So I was aware of that. I don't know when I first became aware of the steroid issue to be honest with you. Yeah, I think so. I, I only really remember, and again, I, I was just becoming a wrestling fan around this time, I only really remember hearing the steroid trial and controversy stuff in like 94, when, when the yes. Vince trial was going on. 
Yes, like there was. I remember a picture of him with the freaking neck brace on. Oh, the money, the money paper, yeah, yeah. the money yes. Yes. And so I knew that. I was like, oh my god. It's like you know, Vince McMahon in a lot of trouble. But yeah, at this point in time, I'm not sure if I was aware of this issue. I, I wasn't watching, you know, the national news really at the time. Again, I'm 10 years old, so you know, Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings aren't you know my favorite things in the world. And a small note here on why you may not remember it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, no, no. I, I actually said it, it has less to do with the copious amounts of weed I've smoked through the years. And probably just because as an 11-year-old, I didn't comprehend what was going on. Yeah, no. They, you know, a lot of times when I forget stuff, it's just like, oh, well, yeah, we all know why there. But, uh, no, I think it's just. And, and that comment that Kyle just made is why when you see the SCG symbol, you cannot be assured of drug-free sports. and <laughs> yes, <it's there's> <laughs> Oh man. Uh, me, meanwhile, while this is Speaking going of drug free sports entertainment or not drug free yeah. sports entertainment. The World Bodybuilding Federation, the upstart promotion by Vince McMahon, has signed Lou Ferrigno of the Incredible Hulk fame to come out of retirement and compete in its muscle shows. Both groups, uh, and of course Joe Weeder's group being the other, the IFBB, uh, has been involved in the biggest muscle bidding war in history to get Lou Ferrigno, who hasn't competed since the 1975 Mr. Olympia. Uh, Meltzer says reportedly McMahon increased his offer to a guaranteed $700,000 a year, plus he waived all rights to control Ferrigno's merchandising. So quite the quite the effort to get him here, and I believe that this ends up blowing up in his face down the road, but we'll get to that. Yeah, and man, if you're a WWF guy at this time, and you see them given 700 large guaranteed to Lou Ferrigno, plus he could control his own merchandising, I would be really mad. And it just so happens there's somebody who does get really mad about it that we're going to talk about later <laughs> in this show. But uh, as for Ferrigno, uh, he would go on the Johnny Carson show around this time and claim he signed with the WBF because it was, quote, drug-free. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have heard it all about. I mean, bodybuilding. I mean, that's like the one industry that people just assume steroids more than pro wrestling. I mean, I I could not find this online, but, I mean, I cannot imagine too many people believed uh, Lou when he said that the reason he signed with WBF was because it was drug-free. I think it was because he was given $700,000 guaranteed uh, is my guess. Uh, the fact that this is only the second uh, most fraudulent late night talk show appearance we're going to talk about in this episode, Liam. A bit jaw dropping. Yeah, 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 it is. The WBF. We've mocked it for a long time now, you and I. Always a dumb idea. But you said this earlier. When you've got a steroid scandal engulfing your primary business, like Vince does here, the WBF becomes even dumber. I mean, why not punt on this? Why are we signing Lou Ferrigno to $700,000 deals? You can only imagine what he's thinking. Because like, He's come this far to try and launch this company, to try and make bodybuilding mainstream at a time when the world around him has become very anti-steroids. You know, it's like this is a real, this is a real two plus two equals five uh, from Vince. Not to say that obviously it, you know, well, it wouldn't have worked because no one would ever care about bodybuilding on a, on a mainstream level. I can't imagine because, well, as we said before, it's it's, it's 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 worthless. But there you go. It's not interesting. I mean, I guess some people like it. I mean, some people like a lot of things. I'm just not into bodybuilding. Two plus two equals five, by the way. Great Radiohead song. Yeah, oh yes, and saying that, by the way, I know that American Gladiators got over, but there was more to that than just the physique spate, uh, I, I think, safe to say. Well, yeah, there was, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't think, you know, people weren't watching that show to see American Gladiators pose 
No. They were watching to see the competition, and there was, like, the whole element of, like, a real person going against these guys. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it wasn't just the allure of seeing big bodies. Um, yeah, there, there was more to that. Uh, Titan makes the decision to announce steroid testing and to get Hulk Hogan to confess to Arsenio Hall that he previously used steroids, but never again, says Meltzer. Yeah, and this is a more recent Meltzer quote from that 03 Observer newsletter. With more and more pressure on the company from the media and the company's attempts at defense only working in reverse, McMahon went from the idea of misleading to the idea of telling the truth. And let's talk about how that went. <laughs> the idea of telling the truth. What an idea. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I can just see Fitz, you know. Guys, I've got a great idea. Let's just tell the truth. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, I, I'm sure everyone's like, what, are, are you okay, Vince? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On July 16th, Titan Sports held a press conference at Donald Trump's Plaza Hotel in New York. Uh, in which McMahon made himself available to the media for questions before questioning began, says Dave. Uh, McMahon said that he experimented with Decadarablin that he purchased from Zahorian three and a half to four years ago for a short time. It's going to turn out that him using that three and a half to four years is very calculated at this time because there was changes in the steroid law uh, in 88. So it, it's very careful, and it later comes out in the 1994 steroid trial that Vince was lying here. Uh, says Gabe, <laughs> quote, years later, went on trial, that brief period that Vince referenced turned out to be several years, and it didn't end by choice, but because McMahon contracted hepatitis, and his doctor told him he had to give the stuff up, end quote. Uh, I believe it also came out uh, in the steroid trial that it was during the filming of No Holds Barred in 1988, so not 87, yep. when Vince originally got on the gas after convincing by Hulk Hogan. Mm -hmm. And by that point in 88, it was illegal for Zahorian to distribute, correct? Yes, it okay. certainly was. So uh, I guess that note kind of flies in the face of the, I got the idea to tell the truth, <laughs> as, it, yeah. as it turns out, not so much the truth. But Vince's strategy here is to basically make himself the scapegoat because nobody buys tickets to see him. Um, it doesn't really matter if Vincent Mann's on steroids. That's not a big deal. But he can, to the media, try and placate them by saying, yes, I, I have done steroids. Like anybody would have even thought that Vincent Mann, would, you know, in his suit, would need to do steroids. So very strange uh, strategy here. Yeah, most people, you know, uh, you know, unless you follow the industry closely and you know, read the observers or whatever, a lot of people didn't know Vince McMahon was the owner of the company. No, I just thought he was a television announcer. I, I don't know when I made that connection again. It's been so long. Um, you know, I, I can't. It, it would. It, it probably wasn't 1991 mm. that I thought that I knew Vince. Oh no, not quite yet. Um, in the next couple of years, obviously I did. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's going to turn out though that he did a better job uh, with you know massaging the truth than Hulk Hogan did on our city hall. Oh, which happened the same night, July 16th. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to start with something Meltzer said in 03, and then you're going to go back to his quote uh, kind of as it happened. Yes. All right. So the idea for both Vince and Hogan was to admit use in the past when it was legal, as steroid usage had become a felony by this point. Due to a legal low loophole, from 1988 to 1991, it was illegal for Zahorian to distribute steroids to wrestlers, so there you go, but not illegal 
for wrestlers to get the packages and use the steroids. But by this time, 91, it was uh, illegal for them to, you know, <laughs> make use of the goods. The, the boys need their candy, and it's, <laughs> that's not legal anymore. So later in the year, uh, numerous big-name wrestlers like Randy Savage would go on talk shows, and when the inevitable question about steroids was asked, they would say something to the effect of, I used them when they were legal and when we didn't know the risks. Uh, Meltzer goes on to say, of course, in almost all cases, it was a different form of BS, but it was a lot smarter in hindsight than what Hulk Hogan did on Arsenio. Liam, could you please tell us what Hulk Hogan did on the Arsenio Hall show that fateful summer evening of 1981? Oh, man. So we'll start with Meltzer's take first, and we'll obviously tell you what we think. In the wake of a Tuesday afternoon press conference... And a Tuesday and a television appearance that night by Hulk Hogan on the Arsenio Hall show that was nothing short of fraudulent. There has been a lot of skepticism brought out regarding Titan Sports' announcement that it will soon be testing its wrestlers for use of anabolic steroids. Hogan put on a sorry performance on Arsenio. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I love that one <laughs> I knew I was going to die. We've been texting about this, and you are like, oh, my God, I've been lying so or laughing so hard at Dave's phraseology of Hogan putting out a quote, sorry, performance. And when I read this, I actually read it in your voice, <laughs> and it makes me laugh harder than, honestly, Dave reading it. But, yeah, the, the, a sorry performance. <laughs> sorry performance. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> Continue. Right. The idea in that situation must have been that honesty was the worst policy. But dishonesty wasn't such a hot policy either, says Dave. What surprised me most was the reaction to Hogan's appearance within the wrestling business. The business, after all, is a work, says Dave. However, Hogan's saying that he only used steroids three times in his life when he was champion in 1983, and for the record he didn't even win the belt until 84, uh, purely as rehabilitation for an arm injury drew a vehement Negative reaction from almost everyone I spoke with this past week within wrestling. Uh, those in the gym considered a sorry sham. Uh, newspaper columnists around the country were dubious and critical of his performance. And rightly okay. so. So we can get into the nuts and bolts now. Uh, it should also be stated for the record, Hogan made a bad error in judgment attacking Bruno San Martino and mm -hmm. Billy Graham on this Arsenio appearance as both of them took... Uh, those shots very personally and would become outspoken critics of Hogan and the WWF altogether in the coming years. And we mentioned a little bit earlier on, he really tried to kind of distance himself. Hogan did from George Zarian, like, Oh, I don't know who this like guy was. And but that like hurt Zahorian's feelings. Yeah. So Zahorian then would turn on him publicly. So this is where I think we should get into the show. Uh, <laughs> people can find this on YouTube. Just Google Hulk Hogan, our city hall, 1991. And there'll be like multiple videos that'll come up so you can choose your favorite uh it is 13 straight minutes of lies <laughs> which i don't know if i've ever seen before like nothing he said was true i don't think <laughs> for 13 consecutive minutes the man just lied and it's easy to say now because you know the story but you could you know to the point he put on a sorry performance you could see how uneasy he was the whole oh, time and man. how unconvincing. And he was just like, okay, how am I going to lie to this one? I mean, it was bad. I mean, I'm going to make kind of a dated American reference here. But Arsenio Hall is not exactly, you know, Mike Wallace, okay, when it comes to hard-hitting <laughs> questioning. And you could just sit and look at Arsenio staring at Hogan, and he's like, are you freaking ribbing me, man? Like, he didn't believe him. Like, it was so bad. Yeah. Uh, 
What did you think? Because th- there's some specific uh, things I wanted to mention. Yeah, it, I, mean, I wanted to get your big picture. It's it, it's so strange because he starts off kind of half confrontational with Arsenio to start with because Arsenio, I guess, had mentioned Hogan's name when, when Arsenio interviewed Lyle Alzado and said, you know, Hulk Hogan's being you know, brought up in this steroid situation. And, and man, he just does not do a good job. I mean, his body language looks like a man that's lying. I mean, he's, his eyes are on the floor and, and darting around as he's trying to talk. He seems nervous. Uh, he, he talks about you know, wanting to kind of come out with the truth, but you know, everything he says, he says with a massive lack of conviction, and he doesn't do a very good job sidestepping Arsenio's very obvious question when he talks about his previous steroid use, if that was Zahorian. And Hogan basically says, well, I don't really want to talk about that right now, but moving on to something. <laughs> 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 Fucking hell. Yeah, that was great. Well, so wait, was this Zahorian, your doctor? Uh, well, you know, you know <laughs> hitting home. Yeah, and he like moves on to like talk about how he hit 300 foot home runs when he was 10 years old or <laughs> yeah. something. Every time, man, I, every time I would hit the ball, it would be a home run. And Arsenio looks at him like, yeah, okay. <laughs> then why aren't you playing Major League Baseball if you were hitting 300 foot bombs when you were 10 years old? Um, so you talk about him being confrontational at the start of that interview. I, I read it as attacking the media, yeah. which is a big thing now, right? When somebody's accused and they're mad about it, it reminds you of a certain former president of the United States, as a matter of fact. It's, I'm very happy that I could say former president of the United States. <laughs> when we last recorded, that was a little bit in limbo. Uh, but now, uh, very comfortable in saying that. So uh, he also called out the NFL for not adopting Vince McMahon's testing. That's beautiful. And I believe he also says that the NFL's testing policy has a, a hole in a bucket a mile wide or something like that, which yeah. <laughs> they, for the record, they didn't have the steroid testing yet. No. When Hogan said that. The steroid testing had not been finalized, I believe, when Hogan uh, went out our city hall. So yeah, what I'd like to see is the NFL adopt Vince McMahon's steroid testing. And of course, the crowd clapped. I know. Well, that's it. What's, what's interesting about it is he comes out doing the ear cupping and doing the, the Hogan bullshit. And this is the thing that, like, you can watch it. And in a way, I kind of admire the bollocks it takes to go out there and, and be kind of, you know, the in-character guy. And then try and drop it and do the serious talk. And you can see him. And he's like, he's, he's just he's always in work mode. And he, he, he doesn't know any different. And with that, that period at the end when the interview's over and obviously the music's playing and he, you know, he, he hugs Arsenio and stuff like that. And he, you know, he, he does the what what completely comes off as a completely fake, uh, you know, moment of humility and I'm being real and, and just kind of quietly talking to our seniors as the music plays. It just it everything about this just comes off completely inauthentic because even from the off when he's talking about how this is me when I'm ten years old and he looks he looks it's just like this just a guy and he talks about how he was 300 pounds coming out of high school which is also bullshit. It's like this, you know. I, I don't know what it's like to be in the crowd during one of those things. I don't know if they have prompts, but there are several times when the crowd actually seems to be with him, which stuns me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's a, you know, a 1991 late night talk show crowd in the U.S. is a pretty uh, fickle bunch, quite frankly. I mean, you're not, mm. <laughs> you're not going to get, you know, the, the best and brightest of this country in that group. Um, how about Hogan saying he had never heard of HGH? Oh, that was good. Never yeah. heard. I don't even know about. It. That's the other thing that I like too is his complete ignorance of what you know. I, I don't even know what these drugs are, but he, he does know what class of drug steroids is, which I thought was uh, you know, he did his homework on that, I suppose. Yeah, and as far as the calling out Bruno and Billy Graham. Oh, that was bad. 
what he's like, you know, this Bruno's a real hypocrite because he worked with Billy Graham and nobody was a bigger steroid guy than Billy Graham. I mean, oh. we're really grasping at straws here and, you know, we'll get to it in a few moments. Um, whoo. They, they done pissed off superstar Graham, man. And he comes at him, uh, you know, scorched earth. But, um, you know, as far as this interview goes, you know, to put a, a bow on it again, people can watch for themselves on YouTube. Um, I would have loved to hear when the music was playing and they're going to commercial what Hogan and Arsenio were saying to each other. Oh, yeah. Because it, it seemed really uneasy. Like Hulk thought Arsenio's line of questioning was too tough. And if you think Arsenio Hall's line of questioning is too tough, I mean, my God, is there like an easier guy to go to in the media than Arsenio Hall? That's it. I mean, because he, he's, he's, he's trying to play along with him a little bit. At the end, he's like, yeah, that's what you want to say to the Hulkamaniacs. I'm like, fucking hell. Like, you know, this really was actually kind of a softball version of this type video, and he still flubbed it. Yeah, and, that, and that's when you know he's in trouble. I mean, if you're flubbing Arsenio Hall, which is, you know, I mean, obviously they picked Arsenio for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, he still couldn't do a convincing job. So yeah, uh, Hulk Hogan in a lot of trouble as we're about to find out. Yes. Meltzer says, judging from Hogan's performance, he was desperately trying to save an image that he's obviously afraid is in some trouble and the gates to his matches tell the same story. As of Monday, the WF advance was a poor 2,700 for a show headlined by a Hogan slaughter desert storm match at the Cow Palace. Uh, he's had some trouble drawing in San Francisco, by the way, in the last uh, year or so, if you listen to these, uh, th- these things. Uh, Hogan would have taken a lot of heat over the short haul if he had told the truth, but in three weeks the story would have been finished, says Meltzer, and he and the WF would have fixed their so-called Achilles heel, the steroid scandal. Instead, Hogan and the WWF are at the mercy of everyone who knows differently to not go public. WWF? The whole new corporate America and sponsors, even in 1991, I guess. So just uh, to explain that quote, it's kind of like, okay, we all know what the deal is, but we don't want to make ourselves look culpable and take the short-term heat. So we're just going to try to run from it. Yeah. And write, write it out. Yeah, and it turns out that's a really bad mistake. Again, to the earlier point, everyone's concerned about bad PR more than health concerns. I want to ask you this. Do you agree with Meltzer that this story would have gone away completely or gone away sooner had Hogan been truthful on Arsenio? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you're honest, nobody really gives a shit. And nobody really thought that it was clean to begin with. <laughs> if I'm like, Just from my own impressions of wrestling and people's perceptions of it when I was younger, nobody, there were no illusions that I remember. Like, the public at large was like, yeah, they're all on steroids and, and whatever, but, like, it's, it's you kind of know that when you just look at them. And, but, but by doing this, Hogan paints such a target on himself, and that's the thing, it's like, by, by painting the target on himself, it continues the story. Because by, by attacking Bruno and Billy Graham, who were huge in New York, the biggest media market in the country, and, and they're, 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 you know, what they said, it was very easy for those guys to get interviews and get coverage. If he says that he did it, if he apologizes, if he baby faces himself, if he if he if he pinches a tear out of the corner of his eye and gives very little room for the story to continue, then if nothing new happens, it stops being reported on. And once it's out of sight, it's out of mind. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, he would have lost some sponsorship deals, but you know, you can always recoup those, and he did yeah. recoup them later yeah, in life. Exactly. I mean, the vi- the vitamin deal obviously was going to go away. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but um, you know, again. You lose some stuff short term so you can survive in the big term. And, you know, and obviously Hogan does survive and gets, you know, bigger again, literally and figuratively. 
But, um, yeah, the, this, the, the lying was not a good move here. And it has come out in subsequent years, I think even during the steroid trial, that Hogan was supposed to be more honest on our steroid. Mm-hmm. He himself called the audible. I think we need to hammer that home, that this was a Hulk Hogan decision, I guess, like in the heat of the moment or as he was getting ready for the show, that Vince had, I think was quoted saying he was disappointed Devastated was the word. Devastated was the word. I knew it was a D word by yeah. what Hogan said. I think they bring that up on the infamous Phil Donahue show. They do. They okay. do. And Vince tries to deny it, saying, I don't think I said devastated. And then Meltzer just goes, the word used to me was devastated. That's right. <laughs> Which he was convinced was a setup. Yeah, so John Arezzi is there, looking like yeah. he just got done auditioning for the role of Bobby Bacala in The Sopranos. <laughs> I love how he's just like <laughs> we're rocking the sunglasses indoors. I know. God, I gotta man. read a Resi's book. That looks like a good book. I haven't checked it out yet. Probably is. Dad, you gotta have some. You gotta have some shame. <laughs> uh, I've decided. By the way, we could talk about this off air. I'm really gonna push you to go to into '92 just because I want to talk about that Phil Donahue show. Oh, we're doing that. I, I already had it in my mind. We gotta do that. We gotta get to that. Okay. Point. All right, good. No pushing required then. Awesome. No pushing required. Uh, however, in the fallout, Chris Cruz attempted to get Bruno Sammartino booked on Arsenio Hall to respond to Hogan's statement, which the show turned down. However, they did say they were very disappointed in Hogan's performance, and they had heard from many athletes in different sports who had used anabolic steroids that were upset with Hogan's dubious claims. Uh, the show's booking department said that they were led to believe that Hogan would come clean and instead did just the opposite. That even though they personally like Hogan as a guest, they won't be booking any more pro wrestlers on the show. So Arsenio Hall's people also had the impression that was the entire point of the appearance. Yeah, and Chris Cruz, obviously a name familiar to wrestling fans, a rather dubious name in the modern sense. I know mm-hmm. that uh, he's not the most popular guy on the Internet right now, but... Uh, we should note that WWF stars had been appearing on Arsenio for years, even the likes of the Twin Towers and Bad News Brown. It, like, it was a media-friendly outlet for WWF to go on. You know, and these guys would be on character, just kind of sell you on the shows. So, you know, losing that was seemingly a big deal. I will point out, though, that there actually was a future WWF appearance on the Arsenio Hall show not long after uh, I believe it was November of 91, where LOD wrestled the Nasty Boys. On the show? Yes. My God. A tag team title match in the Arsenio Hall Studios, called by Mean Gene Okerlund and Jake Roberts. Why? I don't know, but it's on YouTube <laughs> if you want to watch it. I need to go and find it. Do you have a favorite Arsenio Hall appearance? Savage was always pretty tremendous. Yes, I think he showed up in 92. So, again... I, you know, while they say, eh, we don't want any more UWF guys, it, that didn't last very long, mm. uh, apparently. So um, I, I also should would be remiss if I didn't make this joke. Whenever I think about Arsenio Hall at this time period, so um, there's going to be like maybe two people that remember this in the entire world that listen to this podcast, but I'm going it anyway because I remember it. So obviously around this same time period, I think it was actually November of 91, or it might have been August of 91. Something like actually. that, yeah. That Magic Johnson announced that he was HIV positive. Uh, Magic Johnson, the very famous NBA player, for those mm-hmm. who are sleeping under a rock. Uh, well, Magic and Arsenio were really good friends. And they did this video, which was supposed to be like this cool way of talking to teenagers about HIV. Oh, and no. every 
And every local video store, this is before the blockbusters and the Hollywood videos took over the business in this country, it would be sitting right next to the checkout counter, and you could get it for free. <laughs> and I just, I would always remember going to my local Falls video, and I, you know, be checking out a wrestling uh, Coliseum video, and that freaking Arsenio and Magic Johnson HIV VHS would be staring at my face, and I would always think to myself, who the hell would rent this? <laughs> Even for free, it was always there. Yes, it was just right there, and that's the thing, it was never checked out. Like, cause you know, it was, I, I don't, like the actual videotape was like right behind the cover. Uh, if you wanted to rent it, that's how you knew if it was it or not. But yeah, the, the video was always beyond it. Nobody took that thing home, man. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I look up, what was the name of it? It was like, you know, it just was like, it was styled on the cover, like, oh, you know, like real talk and, you know. Oh, you know, that Arsenio, sounds brutal. Magic, Arsenio Hall, Magic Johnson. Just give me a second here. Work <laughs> HIV video. I thought this was going to be a reference to uh, when, because he was on Arsenio like, the day after he did the press conference, and like they, they, did, they did the big, you know, heart to heart speech there. I thought, oh, it's going to be some kind of like, you know, kind of nod to you know, <laughs> whatever happened there. I didn't even know this thing existed. I, I knew you would. Okay, here it is. I found it. I'll have to send you the picture later. Time out. The truth about HIV, AIDS, and you and Magic and Arsenio are both wearing the most 1991 jackets of all time. <laughs> now. There are, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, we've hit a detour on this podcast. <laughs> on this video, there are appearances by Paula Abdul, Color Me Bad of I Want to Sex You Up fame. I don't know if you want that song <laughs> playing during an HIV video. Tom, <laughs> Tom Cruise. What? Luke Perry. For, there's a WWE tie-in. Oh my goodness. Uh, Paulie Shore. Sinbad <laughs> and Malcolm Jamal Warder, uh, who is Theo on the Cosby Show. This, this, this is the definition of Rogues Gallery. Yes. What a video that is. Arsenio has got like this like flat top deal, and he's like pointing at the camera, trying to be real cool, like, "All right, kids, it's okay to talk about it." Yeah. So this is an unbelievable video. I'll I'll send you it. Please, Dave. It's available on Amazon.com. Yeah, just. Time out to the truth about HIV, AIDS, and you, and our listeners can Google it for themselves. Is it free on Amazon? <laughs> that'd be well, that'd be real ironic if you had to pay for this. Would... Yes, you do. It's four thirty eight on VHS on Amazon right now. Jesus. I might get this. Does not include shipping and handling. I may have to get this for journalistic reasons. Okay, I'll report back. Uh, what a video. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> so, I guess that was image enhancement time for, for Magic Johnson. Hulk Hogan was going through his own image enhancement period during this uh, this period. Missed all of his scheduled matches that weekend and was pulled. Uh, he was pulled to work from Minneapolis uh, so that he'd work in the Special Olympics. Yeah, this was covered in the WWF magazine. Uh, not the reason why, of course, but they did have a write-up on Hulk appearing at the Special Olympics. Uh, nothing really amusing from the WWF Magazine article, other than some of these celebrities that Hulk was photographed with. Such luminaries as Don Johnson, Wayne Gretzky, <laughs> wow. John Bon Jovi, wow. uh, Susan St. James, Dick yeah. Emerson's wife, was there. Uh, so, yeah, there was uh, – but the, the, no reason why he was there. It was just because Hulk's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. And to be fair, he did do that – I mean – he did that stuff anyway. I mean, it was just here. Not This wasn't like the only time he ever made an appearance with the Special Olympics. 
certainly a, a, a more impressive list of names than the, the Arsenio Hall Magic Johnson video. Yes, yes, yes. And there's somebody else that I'm missing, too, and it's pissing me off now. I do actually wrote the names. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, uh, Hogan is also taking time off after SummerSlam and won't return until late October, apparently, because he's doing a movie which was Suburban Commando. Um, during the interim, the WF is only going to run one show per night on the houses, headlined by Warrior vs. Undertaker. Undertaker, says Dave, who is gr- the group's hottest character at the minute, isn't even on the SummerSlam lineup, uh, but the Warrior-Taker matches will be coffin matches or body bag matches, which is obviously the second go-around or third go-around for this, for this feud. Yeah, so let me look up, because, you know, I was trying to figure out what movie it was. I thought it might be Suburban Commando, but that, it was, I think it was to promote the movie, because... It came out in the fall of mm. 91. Um, it wasn't like he was filming it, I think. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I do have some tremendous quotes from the critical response section of the Suburban Commando entry on Wikipedia.com. Oh, excellent. Uh, so on Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of 15%. <laughs> Based on only 13 reviews, however, so not, uh, not good, uh, not a lot of people commenting on it. Roger Ebert noted, uh, famous film critic, this is the second feature starring Hulk Hogan, the man who looks like a comic strip hero. Hogan's range is limited, but not as limited as the movies he's appeared in. Despite oh. the fact that his public image is often aimed at children, there's a whole lot of Hulk Hogan toys. His first film, No Holds Barred, in 1989, was surprisingly violent, sexist, and blood-soaked. Now here's Suburban Commando, which is at least innocuous, but which gives the Hulkster so little to do that his fans may wonder why he bothered. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Wilmington opened his review for the L.A. Times by saying that all the main personnel were, quote, likable, but that, quote, all that likability combined or even cubed doesn't create any pressing reason to pay admission to Suburban Commando unless you're an obsessed movie completist or a sudden cloudburst drives you to shelter. (laughs) I laugh very hard. That's good. That's good. Yeah, the only reason I came across that is because I was trying to find the movies, and I saw, yeah, Suburban Commando comes out in the fall of 91. It was pushed back. It was supposed to be a summer release. I don't know if that was anything to do with the bad press. He was getting because I was looking at the WF magazines and originally, yeah, it was supposed to be a, a summer thing and then it, it didn't come out till October apparently. Mm. Maybe there were bomb threats in the theaters or something like that. <laughs> there we go. Uh, there we go. Um, we uh, Warrior versus Taker headlining the Fall House shows. Obviously, that does not happen. <laughs> no. Well, later on. And it is absurd Undertaker is not on the SummerSlam card. Something else we'll later get on to. Yes, indeed. Uh, Suburban Commando was always on, by the way. On like in like the early to mid nineties, I feel like Suburban Commando and Mr. Nanny were like on every like Sunday afternoon here in England. And I've never seen it all the way through, but it was always there. Mr. Nanny was on a lot, but uh, yes, I don't know if I've ever seen Suburban Commando all the way through either. Yeah, is his name like Shep Ramsey or something? I can't remember. Oh, it's really bad. Yeah, it is something awful like that. Hold on here. It's Shep Ramsey. Yes, yes. Shep Ramsey. Yes. <laughs> it's embedded in my brain, even though I've never watched the film. Yes. Always on. Um, many of the WF wrestlers were contacted by the office this week, J.J. Dillon in at least several cases, says Dave, and told to make sure not to bring any anabolic steroids to the airports because they were afraid of searches. And I cannot wait. Until the day we get to talk about the most infamous of searches <laughs> in the WWF locker room. Oh yes, that's uh, that will be in our in our next series, I believe, probably. 
Um, the wrestlers were all apparently told on July 29th that they would be testing for steroids and told to get off the stuff, and also warned that the feds were vigorously enforcing the new steroid law. At first, there doesn't seem to be any imminent change in physiques where, with those in the top positions, but Meltzer goes to a house show and feels differently. He says, There was a noticeable change in many wrestlers' physiques and substantial weight loss. Hercules was flabby, he says. <laughs> Hogan, <laughs> Hogan wore a t-shirt most of his match and has lost a lot of muscle, which pretty much confirms not only that he's off steroids now, but that he must have been on them until recently. And even Sid, LOD, and Ultimate Warrior look smaller, he says. Which, Are, can you, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, because I saw Sid at SummerSlam, and he didn't look very small. Um, mm. So, <laughs> why is it, just clarify for the listeners, that Meltzer said Hogan must have been on steroids until recently? Yeah, I, I wasn't even sure what you meant, because, like, I just assume it means because he was enormous <laughs> before. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, I thought it was, like, I, I didn't know why Dave would be able to know that he must have been, okay, he must have been on them until, because he said he's lost a lot of muscle, mm. but that he must have been on them until recently. So I don't know if there's, like, some immediate physical change that Dave that is aware is. about, that, like, when you, like, get off steroids, that something happens. So I, I didn't know why Dave was able to, um, Make that comment. I'm not a big enough expert on steroids to know why he would have known, oh, he must have been on them until recently. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's, he's got the eye for probably where the losses come first or something yes. like that. He's, yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, barring, this, now this is, an, this is part of the fallout, barring an 11th hour settlement, former WWF champion superstar Billy Graham was scheduled to file a major lawsuit against Titan Sports and its president Vincent Mann on Wednesday afternoon. Along with the lawsuit, Graham was planning to make a public announcement, which sources close to Graham indicate will include very damaging evidence regarding steroid use within the World Wrestling Federation, and by Hulk Hogan in particular. Graham was scheduled to produce his evidence on Thursday night's Entertainment Tonight. If what Graham is going to reveal is damaging enough and those close to the situation indicate that it is... The big question is how this will affect Titan Sports, and in particular, its merchandising and licensing efforts in the wake of all the negative publicity stemming from the Zahorian case. Okay, so we're going to cover this in greater detail in part four, Mm -hmm. uh, because Graham does sue. Uh, During the Zahorian trial, it comes out that Graham was crippled uh, by this point from a a vascular necrosis, I think Mm -hmm. I'm saying that right? Yeah. That's a disease that degenerates the joints. Uh, resulted in him having an artificial hip and an artificial ankle, which his doctor told him was due to his 24 years of steroid usage, and he already was suffering liver damage. Uh, Dave noted that Graham would have almost surely passed away had it not been for him getting a liver transplant. Mm-hmm. Graham also, uh, during the Zahorian trial, disputed the doctor's claim that he only sold steroids to wrestlers in small doses, noting that he himself was a heavy user, and in one 1988 purchase, Sohorian sold him enough steroids to last a full year. Oh, boy. That's, That's uh, interesting, 88, because yes. Billy, um, Billy was done wrestling by that point. Yeah, 80, I mean... I mean, the, the, the comeback com- attempt ended at the end of 87, so... Interesting. And he- yeah, he's, and he was, I mean, he was still, like, walking Don Morocco to the ring, I suppose, and, had, you know, he need, needed the guns for that, but <laughs> I, uh... I, I guess, yes. Uh, this, this is interesting to me, because I remember when we were doing the 1990 series, there was pre-WrestleMania, wasn't there, like, uh, uh, I, I probably should go back and listen to this, I'm almost certain that there was a, a steroid-related interview with Billy Graham, where what was hinted at there 
Graham revealing some evidence that might be damaging to uh, to Titan Sports and, and, and steroids in wrestling, and Hogan in particular, it was hinted at then, and it comes out what it is, I think in part four, so I'm looking forward to obviously hitting the big reveal. Um, but I thought it was interesting, knowing obviously what's coming, Hogan's kind of preemptive attempt to bury Graham. Anyway, he was softer on Graham than Bruno, but mm-hmm. he, still, he still made the point to try and kind of hit the credibility of Billy Graham because Arsenio throws up, hey, this Billy Graham, the guy that's not a reverend, that's a wrestler, um, you know, he, I hear that he was talking about it. And then Hogan, of course, uh, talks about how Billy Graham apparently did steroids for years and years and years in, in, in what was apparently a shocking revelation to, to Hulk Hogan. Um, but yeah, a, a, bad, a bad move to attack Graham or at least even bring him up in hindsight because Graham was on the warpath and, and uh, clearly he has the ammunition. Yeah, and he was sitting on it. I think the damaging stuff that comes out is a lot of the old wrestlers throw out these guesstimates of the percent of guys in WWF that are on steroids, and they're throwing out numbers like 90%. Yeah, And then some guys are like, yeah, that's probably low. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Graham's personal one is that he injected Hogan himself. That's right. Yeah, no, that's yes, of course. Yes. Which, 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 if you know that, why would you, why would you start a fight with this guy? Yeah, wasn't there some, like, thing about cocaine, too, that he talks yeah. about? Like, Hogan's like, I can stop this, and then he does it, like, takes a bump right in front of Graham <laughs> on an airplane or something. Most comprehensive testing in all of sports. Yes, we don't judge. To be honest, that's kind of cool, that part. But, uh... <laughs> in order to beat Graham to the punch, Titan itself sent a press release on Monday regarding its drug testing policy, which would be conducted by Comprehensive Drug Testing, Inc., who ran the NBA and MLB testing. Did you catch, by the way, Carl, in the notes, who the head of this is? Who the head of comprehensive drug testing is? Yeah. No. Dr. David Black, the same guy who heads the DF policy in 2005 after Eddie Guerrero dies. Wow. The more wow. things change. I did not make that connection. Oh, okay, that's very interesting. Yeah, I thought so. And, you know, so here there is, in a, I guess the framework of official testing. So, you know, going back to the DeVito and Hogan comments from before, what made that such manure is, I mean, <laughs> there was no testing in place until at this point, this Monday, that they announced it. So um, the testing does begin when? What are the official first rounds of tests made? I mean, do they start testing in the fall of 91? I believe so. Okay. So more been- on that. They, they, definitely, they definitely do, because I remember the test results coming back in November, and they ain't pretty. <laughs> right. They did do the first round of tests, and they're like, oops, we'll do a do-over. Yeah, let's <laughs> do that again. Uh, so, obviously, absolute madness has taken place here from a PR perspective in, in, in the WWF. Vince is not having a good time. Hogan's not having a good time. And we're going to transition now away from that, because that's pretty much where the story ends uh, as, as the end of August approaches. But... Obviously, you're going to scale back now to the start of July on screen in the World Wrestling Federation, Kyle. Yes. So, utter chaos outside the ring. Everything we've talked about so far. Not to mention two other major stories involving Ric Flair and the Ultimate Warrior that we have not even covered yet. We're not even going to get to Ric Flair today. No. Oh, it's just a word of warning. That is just how ridiculous this two-month period is. We just There's no way we're going to be able to give that. It's just due uh, in the next couple hours. We will talk about the Ultimate Warrior, though. So all this is going on outside the ring, steroids, major names coming and going. And while it's happening, the WWF is, oh, by the way, building to its second biggest pay-per-view of the year, SummerSlam, which, as Meltzer had previously reported, we talked about uh, in part two, 
will be headlined by the match made in heaven and the match made in hell. The match made in heaven, of course, uh, the TV wedding of Randy Savage and Elizabeth, who had been married uh, for real since 1984. Yeah, so the, the, the match made in heaven... Uh... It's, it's actually like at the very beginning of the of July, actually. There's an angle that airs where Randy Savage asks Miss Elizabeth to marry him, which is kind of building up throughout the course of the show. The banter with Piper and Vince on commentary is pretty amusing stuff, with them kind of like needling here. <laughs> you know, you know, do it, do it. Piper's speculating afterwards if Savage will be able to get the words out at SummerSlam. Vince obviously kind of asking who, you know, but what if, you know, what's going to happen when they ask who might object to the wedding? You know, and it's just like, yeah, again, just like all that kneeling, like, hey, something could happen here, something could happen here. Uh, but I, I was entertained by this, the, uh, the, the build-up to the... Uh, and, of course, Elizabeth says, oh, yeah, to, to accept the proposal. Yeah, I mean, is this my favorite angle of all time? Absolutely not, but you're right. I think Elizabeth answering with, oh, yeah, was, like, a really nice touch. An yeah. obvious thing to say, but it was good. And, you know, Piper standing up and yelling off headset, get down on your knee, was really <laughs> funny. Uh, before Savage asked her to uh, marry him. Um, I do like in subsequent uh, interviews, like uh, on the barber shop or whatever, Savage explained wanting the wedding in the ring at SummerSlam because his career had been taken away from him. He just wanted in the ring one last time. And what oh, better yeah. way than have a wedding? So that was kind of a, a decent thing because it was funny. As soon as they announce, you know, the engagement, they immediately say, well, they're going to get married at SummerSlam. <laughs> <laughs> Randy and Liz didn't even get a chance to pick the date. Uh, you oh. know, and Vince is like, nope, you're getting in that ring at SummerSlam. That's when you're getting married. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's uh, interesting stuff. And, of course, you know, this, I guess, is pertinent because that Randy Savage documentary just aired on A&E. Yeah. Uh, it was at this time, unfortunately, that Savage and Liz's real-life marriage, which, again, began in 1984, was starting to fall apart. Mm. So, yeah, that, that sucks. And, you know, it's too bad. I, what was that comment Savage had? like a few years after this, it might've been when he was at WCW about how you, you know, you don't want to bring your wife into wrestling. He's like, I had a wife in wrestling once and now I don't got a wife. Yeah. Something I got the wife like no more, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's sad stuff, you know, especially coming up that documentary and how everything ends. So, yeah. uh, but yo, know, it was good times here and it's, uh, you know, a co-headliner for SummerSlam. The other half of uh, the match made in hell. Not good times. about. Yes, in Not Good Times is a two-on-three handicap match. Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior taking on Sergeant Slaughter, Colonel Mustafa, and General Adnan. Now, this is me talking here. It's logical, this match, in the sense that it's your chance to blow off the quote-unquote top heel of 91 against the two baby faces he's wrong. Obviously, there was the fireball angle with Hogan after WrestleMania, and he had taken the title from Warrior at Royal Rumble. But Sarge and his core had been dying on the vine for some time, as we've talked about. Mm. Uh, you know, Hogan and Slaughter, arguably the weakest Mania main event of all time. Maybe not even arguably. It might be inarguably the weakest Mania main event of all time. I think um, I used the term when we talked about WrestleMania 7. It was Vince's first big Mania main event misfire. Yeah. And there's an argument, I think, that this – main event for SummerSlam is the weakest ever for a Mania or SummerSlam to this point in time. Even as an 11 or near 11 year old, I I was aghast at this bit of matchmaking. Uh, You know, again, I'm a kid and I'm like, well, who do you hell do you think is going to win this? (laughs) Even with the two on three gimmick, 
I mean, it's just a formality here. Mustafa and Adnan, just horrific as pay-per-view main eventers. <laughs> Not even, like, even on television where they do the squash matches just beating up jobbers. No one gives a fuck. They, they feel like they're not even over at all. No. Um, the wild card, for lack of a better term, in this equation, though, and this is something I'm going to want to focus on here for the next uh, several minutes, is the recently acquired Sid Justice yeah. being the special referee for the match. Yeah, so this is pretty much, to be honest, the only real intrigue this entire scenario has. Vignettes have been airing for Sid, those kind of weird kind of a, just a, just a screen of, of Sid's face with like a, a serial killer sound effect in the background. And then Aaron for him. And then it will cut to heels and faces throughout the company debating which side of the fence Sid sits on. Yeah. And so I love the one where the natural disasters wonder if Sid might be a, a potential third disaster known as Volcano, to which Virgil retorts, uh, claiming justice would, quote, explode on their face. I laughed <laughs> Very hard at that uh, Freudian yeah, slip there that by was Virgil. Great. Yeah, was uh, was this the first time Virgil came up with meat sauce? I wonder. <laughs> Virgil does not have a good month on the microphone, as we'll get to in, in part three B. But uh, this one claimed that Sid will erupt in, in their face was just vulgar. That yeah, was it's really uncalled for stuff. I don't. I like I said. I laughed hard. He's gonna explode in your face. And I was just. <laughs> it's like when they recorded that, did they not? You know, stop and think to do a retake or what? Uh, Sid Justice wasn't too thrilled when he got his contract from the WWF, which had the same two thousand two hundred fifty dollar per year guarantee that everybody else gets, and he made some contact with WCW last week. But after considering everything, everything's been settled apparently. I am dead at this quote. So as we talked about, uh, you know, when we went over Sid's uh, departure from WCW, I believe that's part 2A if you're keeping yep. score at home. Uh, you know, it was very acrimonious to say the least. So how does this phone call or this contact with his former employer go, uh, guys, you know, I fucked you over really bad at Super Bowl. Any chance I could come back? or <laughs> Like, I, that's on the balls on this guy to, to like, be bad. I, I don't know. If, I, to be honest, I don't know if this is true. But, you know, it's just unbelievable that you would fuck over a company and say, hey, you know, I'm not really happy with my pay at this new place. You know, could you guys beat it? They have no pride. These people have no pride. They let them out of a valid deal in the first place. We were talking about how, you know, they were just completely spineless bastards in the way they dealt with Sid. I'm, I'm convinced they would have taken him back. Yeah, they probably would have. <laughs> yeah, of course they would have. Oh, man. So, anyway, the way that this all actually plays out on screen, we have Sergeant Slaughter's gang, his core of destruction, out for a promo with Mean Gene. And Sid comes in, uh, and this is his first appearance on television. They give him a salute, uh, but he tells them that he's not part of their core and that justice will be served at SummerSlam, which is pretty much the, the, the line that gets repeated ad nauseum uh, for the rest of the month. Uh, they do a very similar scene with Hogan and Warrior, um, where again he comes out and says the same thing, justice will be served. And in response, Hogan's facial expressions are pretty good in the background as Sid is talking about how he's not going to take any sides, I guess, you know, hankering for, for, for some you know, partiality, as, as Hawkins want to do. Yeah, so uh, Sid, you mentioned it. Sid's appearance on the Slaughter Gang promo uh, was the official announcement of him being the special guest referee, not just his first uh, TV appearance in front of a live crowd. Uh, 
he had done those run-ins in dark matches we talked about in part two where mm-hmm. uh, various heels would say, you know, who wants a piece of me? And Sid comes running out. Uh, apparently one of those is actually available on tape. Uh, he did it to Ted DiBiase. It, there, WWF, or WWE, pardon me, uh, had that, like, unreleased DVD, like, 86 to 95. Do you remember this? I do. I, a couple years ago. Yeah, and apparently Sid beating up Ted DiBiase is on it. Huh. I didn't so, know that. Yeah, no, I, I forgot either. That's something I got off history WWE.com. So, yeah, so Sid, he shows up. Uh, you talk about Hogan's facials being good. Uh, those are not to be confused with Justice's hypothetical volcanic facials. Uh, <laughs> so we're clear on that. Uh, when Sid was standing there with Hogan and Warrior, was, <laughs> okay, I'm, first of all, this had to be Vince McMahon's wet dream, and this should be put on the Facebook page, too, if you could take a screenshot of this, the three of them standing there, because it is very obvious at that point in time the, quote, most comprehensive steroid testing had yet to begin. I'll I mean, say. those were three just ginormous dudes standing next to each other. Uh so, yeah, very, I'm sure Vince loved that, but uh, unfortunately, uh, that uh, bodies like that were not long for the promotion. No, uh, you know, just this makes those guys look small. Yes, he does. I mean, he, he standing next to him, I mean, it's crazy, I mean, how much bigger uh, he is. And uh, going back to the slaughter one, though, I had a question for you. Did Sid think Sarge, Mustafa, and Adnan were all in different cores? <laughs> because he goes up to them all individually. He's like, I'm not in your core. I'm not in your core. I'm not in your core. They're all in the same core, Sid. <laughs> you only needed to say that to one of them. So, uh, Sid, I, I, Sid wasn't the brightest when it came to his, uh, his, his uh, interactions with the talent. Can we start over? No, pal, oh, yeah. we're live. <laughs> uh, so here's what I want to talk about. Sid, as the guest referee in his first big WWF angle. He's a newly acquired guy. It's his first pay-per-view cycle. He's going to ref the main event. This is the second time in the first four SummerSlams that they're using the guest referee gimmick for a tag team main event. Jesse Ventura, of course, in 88 for the Mega Powers versus the Mega Bucks. Is this the best use of Sid at SummerSlam 91 that they could have done? I think... In fairness, if it's not, it's pretty high up because it's the only reason, like I said, this is the only reason this match has any interest at all. And it's actually pretty, it is, you know, when you look at it for what it is, it's, it's Hogan and Warrior in a pay-per-view main event. The new guy in town is Sid. And that's really all that anybody's talking about. You know, they do, I mean, they do the, we do the, they do the 20-second promos or whatever, the, you know, the one-minute promos with, you know, Hogan and Warrior together backstage, which we'll talk about soon. But, I mean, other than, I mean, there's, there's no angles. There's really nothing going on at all. It's all about Sid. So when you look at it like that, it's like they're bringing him in at the top. He is all that the main eventers of, of the past year are talking about. It, it, it spotlights him in a way without having to kind of expose him and kind of keeps a bit, an air of mystique around him. I don't, I don't mind this. I don't hate this, especially because, again, it's not like the, you know, the slaughter thing setting the world on fire. It's not like he's getting in the way of a hot angle. Like, he is the angle. Yes, I completely agree. And for what they were going for, which was basically to get Sid as the number two baby face in the company, because they're about to lose the current, <laughs> the existing number two baby face in the company. I don't think you could have done that better than what they did here. Uh, mm. And we'll get to like how they did it. But, you know, I mean, 
what are the alternatives is something you have to consider, too. If you're going to criticize, well, what, you know, I mean, does he wrestle a match? I mean, if you're bringing him in as a baby, because I mean, just, you know, squashing, I don't know. Warlord. Like, Warlord or Hercules on paper. What does that do? I mean, I yeah. think associating him in the main event scene is the right play. So, yeah, I do think this was the right call. Um, and the drama over, you know, what side will he favor in the main event if he favors either <laughs> side. It really was the most interesting thing in the build-up to the match made in hell. Yeah, and, and I mean, Sid does seem slightly biased during the Hogan-Warrior conversation by raising both of their hands to start. And then he just goes fucking wild on Oakland, who dares to ask me if he's biased. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the first or the last time, I should say, Sid would go wild at Oakland. Who could forget that WrestleMania 8 interview where he calls him a bald <laughs> oaf and tells him to shut up? <laughs> I enjoyed that. Yes. Uh, good stuff. So, Bill, again, the build for the tag match is really heavy on these, yeah, on TV, that the Hogan Warrior promos backstage, they're mostly good. They're not great, but, you know, slaughters are horrendous. Um, at one point during the Hogan Warrior promo, Hulk tells us all to check out popcorn boxes for hand grenades uh, in Madison Square Garden. And don't forget to look under those seats for booby traps as well. Yeah. I, I don't know what Hulk thought they'd been doing to MSG, but my God, I mean, hand grenades in the popcorn boxes. <laughs> I, uh, you know, again, it feels like Hogan's still, still wishing that the Gulf War was going on. Yes, and let's not forget that the Iraq, when he wins the world title, that is when Saddam Hussein was going to surrender. Unfortunately, Saddam gave up well before that. So, mm. Unfortunately for Hulk's case, as we had talked about previously in this 1991 series, you're right with Slaughter. Uh, I mean, those interviews got real repetitive and bad. Not that the Hulk warrior ones were breaking any new ground each time out, but at least they were funny because Hulk was saying stuff like, you know, checking popular <laughs> boxes for hand grades. Slaughter, he had one on the barber shop. That was, I think, the last week yeah, before yeah. SummerSlam. That was especially bad. Like, it was just drawn out. He was saying these things. And you could tell nobody in the crowd bought this heel group as a threat to win at SummerSlam. And I think that was the problem. And uh, we're going to talk about later on in this podcast a potential alternative that they could have done to make SummerSlam match made in hell, I think, a little bit more juicy. Yeah, certainly a lot more. Um now, of course, they do Hogan and Slaughter on free TV. This is part of the SummerSlam Spectacular uh, on USA. But it's a sure sign that it's a singles match. They, they, they feel like there's no steam left in this. Yeah. And remember, no Saturday night's main event anymore. Yeah, so, that's gone. The, the previous two years, they had always done a big Saturday night's main event in the summer that um, kind of served as the, uh, you know, the big setup for SummerSlam. Like Hogan made his return uh, the previous year. And was, you know, got into it with Earthquake. And then two years prior was the big thing with Hogan and Zeus, with yeah. Zeus No Sell in the Chair. So this summer, some spectacular kind of takes the place of Saturday Night's main events, albeit on USA. Yeah. Uh, the match itself ends in a DQ when you know, the goons run in. Uh, no sign of the warrior, but Sid walks down, doesn't exactly sprint to the ring, but he, he kind of, you know, ambles to the ring, holds back the heels. And then when Hogan kind of runs in with a chair to get them back, Sid takes the chair away. So again, like I say, the primary intrigue of this entire scenario is just what's Sid going to do? And, and yeah. to be honest, it kind of looks like he's just going to call it down the middle. So, Which is kind of what he does. But yeah. uh, I don't think that, you know, you talk about no steam left in Hogan's slaughter. Certainly, uh, there's no denying that. I don't think running this match on free TV, given that it was a tag at the pay-per-view, is quite as egregious as the previous year when they ran Warrior Rude 
mm. on Saturday night's main event. Remember we talked about yeah, that? Yeah, that was a terrible and, idea. And Warrior wins, and then they do yeah. a cage match at pay-per-view. That was real bad. Um, and, yeah, we've talked about it. I, I'm with you 110% that Sid's involvement here, um, without it, this match made in hell situation has had no intrigue whatsoever. You knew who was going over, like I said, even with the two-on-three format. Uh, and that speculation on who Sid, quote-unquote, will favor went all the way to the pay-per-view. They did an angle on the show where they showed him backstage, like, laughing with Slaughter. And they're mm. like, what's this? And Sid's like, you know, <laughs> you know, that was taken out of context or something like that. I think he, like, you know, he blames the media. Yeah, oh, yeah. I was going to say, this is typical WWF kind of uh they're projecting their real-life frustrations on, on, on the coverage of the media. Uh, Meltzer says, I expect Slaughter to turn face at SummerSlam since they just came out with a new Slaughter t-shirt, uh, and they rarely market heel gimmicks, and his heel character is the last one people would buy t-shirts of. I agree with that. Uh, but guess what? I looked in the WF magazine, and his shirt was in the catalog that was always in the middle of those magazines. Mm-hmm. And it looked to be pre-face turn. Like he had a scowl on his face. Now I think it was the same shirt that they sold once he did turn baby face. So keep in mind, those magazines came out like, well, you know, it, it wasn't in real time. Like you'd get yeah. the magazine and like SummerSlam, it had the SummerSlam results, but SummerSlam was like two months old at yeah. that point. So I don't know. It, it was just interesting that slaughter was very much scowling as he was modeling his T-shirt, which leads you to believe that he, you know, took the photo as a heel. But he does, of course, turn babyface. Not at SummerSlam, but in the fall. And I read that from Meltzer. My God, I thought that face turn was way too quick to begin with. Oh, God. Like a couple weeks after SummerSlam. Doing it at SummerSlam would have been ridiculous, especially with all that was going on, yeah. uh, at the, you know, behind the scenes. Now, I mean... Oh. And by the way, there were no airbrushed Saddam Hussein flags we found in that WWF catalog. It's <laughs> about leaving money on the table. You know, Vince is slipping, clearly. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll talk about the slower face turn coming from part four, but needless to say, ill-conceived. And, 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 and when, you look, when you really think about it, it kind of speaks to how little they think of the audience. Yes. That, like, well, and it also speaks to how little the angle got over. Yeah. Really, because if the angle had gotten over anywhere near what they had hoped, that's like kind of like an unforgivable heel turn, right? But what happens is, you know, spoiler, he turns babyface and no one really cares. <laughs> Still. Yeah, so I mean, it's just like, you know, if it was truly like this thing that people care, like, oh my God, you know, Sarge, you know, he's he back. really is about, yeah, he's a, he's back. He really does love this country after all. Then there would have been this level of like emotion and caring and it just wasn't there. It no. just speaks to how shitty this heel character was and how ill-conceived <laughs> it was. Where's Volkov, you know? With his shadow boxing. <laughs> That's what it was missing. Now, obviously, we've been hitting the Sergeant Slaughter stuff and the build to SummerSlam pretty hard here, but there is kind of an elephant in the room that we need to talk about, need to address, an appropriate sidebar here, because at the end of July, the Ultimate Warrior no-shows, uh, the episode of Superstars on the 29th, the challenge tapings on the 30th, and a couple of the house shows before returning on August the 3rd. Uh, Warrior is on the tapings that will air post-SummerSlam, however. About that. Yeah. Um, and then, um, let's talk about what led to these no-shows. Yes. So, on previous podcasts, we've detailed that Warrior and Taker had become the hottest feud in the company over the course of the summer and the biggest draw over the Hogan feud with Slaughter. Tensions are brewing and things are kind of coming to a head. Obviously, Warrior's been kind of... De-emphasized since his, uh, since his, uh, since Hogan has gone to take him the crown again, 
there was an incident that took place, and this is uh, this is courtesy of I think it was uh, David Bixenspan who who did a big write up on this. Wally was alleged to have rudely snubbed a boy who asked for an autograph. Uh, the child turned out to be the son of the general manager of a TV station with whom the WWF did business. Uh, Vincent Mann explained the circumstances. So these are quotes from the, uh, the 1999 deposition uh, that was done in the lawsuit uh, with Wally and Vince. The TV manager had been embarrassed in front of his son, said Vince. And Mr. Helwig agreed to, at the very least, do a videotaped I'm sorry, you know, type situation, which he objected to, obviously. <laughs> So the Warriors' reputation sticking right uh, alongside his SummerSlam tag partner, I see. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, and that goes to, you know, something we had discussed in the past, like, okay, if they had stuck with Warrior as the champion a little bit longer, would that have been better mm. for the company? Because, you know, Hogan gets hit hard. He's very much, you know, the public face of the WWF. But if you had the Warrior still as the champion and you had still pushed him out there more um, as an equal to Hogan or even a superior to Hogan – well, I don't know. Maybe there's some benefit to that, but no, not really. Yeah, there may, I mean, the war- may be problems. Yeah, because yeah, the Warrior, I mean, they got issues with him, too, is we're going to get to. Now, in a handwritten letter to Vincent Mann dated July 10th, 1991, obviously this is before the no-shows, Warrior let Vince have it, and, and he's firstly addressing the apology video, uh, saying to stand and make a videotaped apology for something I never did made me realize all we have is business. Wally then goes on to write, in reaching this conclusion, I ask for these things. You say 500000 for WrestleMania is unfair, Then I say the last five and a half years of not being compensated equally when I meant as much or more to the company was total bullshit and most definitely unfair. I have sacrificed more than 500000 more than $1 million, even more in monies, this is his poor grammar, not mine, uh, that should have been paid to me in receiving equal compensation as Hulk. Warrior wrote a list of demands to Vince uh, in this letter from July 10th. Number one, $550,000 release from the monies allotted me to purchase my home. This will suffice as my WrestleMania 7 payoff, but let it be noted, it is not fair. I meant as much or more to that show as Hulk. I deserve to be paid the same. I know what Hulk will get, he says. Demand number two, four days off every other time period except pay-per-views only. Demand number three, I want the same pay cut as Hulk gets on pay-per-views, Saturday's main events, Friday primetime, house shows, and proof of search. The same pay cut applies to what Hulk has been paid with relationship to past events WrestleMania 5, 6, 7, i.e. when Hulk was the top draw. Demand number four, I want monies and prove of monies, not proof, but prove of monies, on 1-900 Hulk and likewise same pay cut. Demand number five, same pay cut on all forms of merchandising. Wally then ends the letter with the following. Because I have had to always knock on your door, words alone are not good enough. I understand Doug Sages, who's the CFO, is on vacation. Call him, take his days off away like you do to the boys and myself and have it written. Every time I had to knock upon your door, upon leaving, I have always apologized. I no longer feel I have any reason to apologize. Therefore, I will not. I have tried to speak as a friend. (laughs) But maybe I don't have the qualities you required to seek me out as a friend. The videotaped apology was the icing on the cake. You see it as business, so whether I like it or not, I must do the same. Whatever your decision, I can and will live with it. Okay, you had a lot to read there, so let me ask some questions (laughs) and give you a chance to uh, recoup. Warrior being a lousy human being, and poor writer aside, uh, here is an honest question I have for you. Did the Warrior mean as much to the WWF in 1991 as Hulk Hogan did? 
We have previously discussed the Royal Rumble buy rate, which was superior to the WrestleMania buy rate. Why is that significant? Well, first of all, <laughs> Royal Rumble almost never does better than WrestleMania. I think it's only happened one or two other times mm-hmm. we've talked about. Um, and Royal Rumble was Warrior Slaughter as the headliner. WrestleMania was Hogan Slaughter as the headliner. We've talked about the post-WrestleMania house show programs, post-WrestleMania 7, that is, over the summer of 1991. Warrior and Taker was out drawing Hogan and Slaughter. Hogan is, there's no doubt about this. He's obviously a bigger deal all time than the Ultimate Warrior. That's, like, inarguable. Mm -hmm. But post-WrestleMania 6, this is my opinion, the argument that Hogan is still bigger than the Warrior really rests solely on the SummerSlam 90 number. And as we've gone further and further away from that, I've noticed that number or, or you know, Hogan's drawing power for it that seems to be an outlier mm-hmm. in the sense that Hogan was coming off the extended layoff. You know, he did not wrestle uh, at all between WrestleMania and SummerSlam. That was his first match back. Uh, they did the awesome angle with Earthquake. You know, we t- he did a great job at it. There's no dispute. We were very oh, yeah. complimentary of Hogan's performance. There's no denying that he did a great job. But it was also a tailor-made situation for him to do well. Yes. Right? Especially vis-a-vis the Warriors, like, shitty feud with Rick Rude, which <laughs> yep. we talked about, like, had just it was just bad. So it seemed that, like, by that point – Internally, they'd just given up on the notion that they could make the Warrior even an equal to Hogan. But after they kind of came to that decision, he very much seemed to be an equal to Hulk Hogan. Remember, Warrior being around and being the champion in the summer of 1990 is what allowed Hulk to take that time off. If you don't have someone you trust in that position, you know, Hogan can't take the time off at all. And thus, you know, be such a big deal and, and draw that. Big pay-per-view number they got at SummerSlam. And so I've got a number. I, I know that's a lot there, but I've got two questions for you. The first one, I'll th- then I'll, I'll, you answer this one, then I'll throw you to the second. Sure. The first one is, did the Warrior mean as much to the WWF in 1991 as Hulk Hogan did? I do. I absolutely do. Okay. Um, because, you know, it's funny, and you know what <laughs> is kind of the strongest thing for the warrior there, like what, what his big point can be. Well, they went back to Hogan and what happened? Yes, indeed. Business and, and went the, down. Business went down and it went again. This was not just an, a, a thing to do with Hogan and the belt and the timing. He didn't draw well in the fall of 1990 either, as we talked about. Once, once that initial thing happened and they were doing the tag matches with him and Tugboat against Quake and Bravo, those things tanked. Yes, that's another great point. You're right. And that's why I look at SummerSlam 90 and Hogan getting that big number on paper as the outlier. And being the star, it was just Taylor May. It was his first time back. People hadn't seen him wrestle in four months. And then once he was back, it was kind of, well, back to the point that we talked about at the beginning of 1990. There was some staleness. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, they put the title back on him because, well, the Warriors know Hulk Hogan, so let's just go back to Hogan. And if Hogan was still a significantly bigger deal than the Warrior, you would think business would go up. But it didn't. Yeah. It actually kept going down. And, you know, again, I want to reiterate, you know, because, you know, the warrior, he's not a, you know, bless his soul. He wasn't a good guy. Okay? <laughs> he was not a good guy. But 
Um, and he's not a, as big a deal as Hulk Hogan was. He never was going to be as big a deal as Hulk Hogan was in Hulk Hogan's prime. But in 1991, I really do think it's a 1A, 1B situation. And it's really interesting watching the television. And I watched the match made in hell this morning. Uh, again, you know, I've seen it a million times, but I wanted it fresh in my mind. Like, there's this thing like, oh, my Hulk Hogan, the greatest world champion of all time. Yeah, it's nauseating. Yeah, and they're very much like, oh, you know, Hulk is back on his, you know, on top where he deserves to be, and the you know, Ultimate mm-hmm. Warrior. Yeah, you guys kind of like him, but he's number two. He's number two. I, I just think that that's not actually accurate. I don't think so either. Now you mentioned something there that was funny. The whole idea of in 1990 they give it to Warrior, and they come to the conclusion where Warrior is no Hulk Hogan. Well, by 1991, when you look at the actual results, it turns out Hulk Hogan is no Hulk Hogan either, because it's 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 that thing at a tippy top level. Vince especially has this belief in like a mythical star power value, even when there's no sign that the star power is actually making any difference. And this is this is part of Vince's belief. I mean, it continues not so much today, but even you know recently, a couple of years ago, Lesnar. Lesnar's a great example of a guy who. They pay big money to because they think he's a star, but when you actually look at like ratings and numbers, there's nothing that really you can point to and say, you know, Lesnar's star power actually equals this for business. In 1991, it was pretty much the same with Hogan. Like we say, if, if, if it wasn't the case, Warrior wouldn't be outdoing him on these house shows. And Warrior's buy rate with Slaughter certainly wouldn't have been better than WrestleMania with, with all the, the equity that has. Yeah, um, you know, I was thinking about this, and obviously we have a lot more to talk about with the Warrior in this podcast, but this is a question, the second question I want to throw to you. Was he unfairly judged those first four months vis-a-vis Hogan's first four months in 1984? So here's one that's out there. For those who don't know, and I I think your light bulb already went on, but there may be some who are saying, what's up with Hogan's first four months in 84? What happened the first four months in 1984? Hulk Hogan, as world champion, was being outdrawn at the houses by Sergeant Slaughter Iron Sheik. It wasn't like Hulk just became the world champion. He just dominated. So, But what did they do? They had this belief, no, Hulk Hogan's the guy we're building around him no matter what. And they saw it through, and it obviously worked tremendously, right? I mean, they were correct. I mean, you know, just, you know, kind of looking past that short-term view of Slaughter Sheik, you know, they're like, no, Hogan's the guy. We're building him. He's got more charisma. He's the bigger, you know, star. We're going with Hogan, even though, you know, there might be a hotter feud underneath him right now. And Hogan really didn't have any feuds in 84 until Piper. No, I was going to say, mean, Piper's really, I mean, when, when you first mentioned that then, 84, I was like, 84, what the fuck did Hogan do in 84? And of course, the answer is that Hogan is, relative to that, not really doing anything. Piper is really the first. And again, it's, it's all built into 85. It's a, it's, a, it's a long-term vision with Hogan. Yeah, I, so I just think, it was kind of a self-serving prophecy, and I think I've mentioned this before on the series. You know, Pritchard kind of intimated that they never really thought the Warrior was going to be bigger than Hogan. And again, I, he wasn't going to be bigger than Hogan was. But I think, and we'll talk about this more at the end of the show, there, you know, this idea that Hogan was so much significantly more important to the company in 1991 wasn't true. And mm. look at what happens in the fall. When he leaves, and, and again, that's outside. That, that's when decline becomes more inevitable because all this other stuff we're talking about. But you know, I, I just, you know, I think Warrior has a point. It is. Oh, he's got a case. He's got yeah. a case. I mean, what does everyone remember about WrestleMania Seven? <laughs> well, the career-ending match, clearly. Yes, exactly. Um, so, I mean, that's just another mark in his favor. I mean, 
that wasn't marketed as a double main event, but it kind of felt like it was a double main event. It really was. And And, and, I'd argue that it was maybe even harder than the main event anyway. Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I was way more looking forward to that than the Hogan Slaughter thing. So, yeah, I I think Warrior has a point here. But uh, apparently Vince McMahon thinks the Warrior has a point too, Liam? Oh, indeed. So on July 13th, three days later, Vince sent a letter back to the Warrior, not only accepting all of his demands, but going overboard and smoothing everything to his liking. Vince wrote in the letter, You will be paid an aggregate amount of $550,000 for your participation in WrestleMania 7. With the exception of special events only, you will receive four days off every other time period. Your pay rate on house shows will increase to 4-5% to of the net, effective immediately, with the understanding that no other WF athlete will be paid at a higher rate. Likewise, no other WF athlete will be paid at a higher pay rate than you on pay-per-view events. <laughs> and then the following is perhaps the most incredible thing ever written. Penn was put to paper to write these words. I regret the turmoil you put yourself through, and you're agonizing over what you feel is fair compensation. And even though we have a difference of opinion over some of these matters, I am resolved to work with you in the same honest and equitable way that I always have. Furthermore, I would like to express to you my deepest appreciation and admiration for you as a performer, as a member of the WWF family, as a man, and as my friend. Awesome. (laughs) Vincent Kennedy McMahon obviously has no soul. (laughs) Quite clearly. Like, look, as we're going to come to find out, Vince is just lying here to get through SummerSlam. (laughs) Yeah. But the fact that he can, I mean, you know, he's writing this, he's not saying it to Warrior's face, but the fact he was able to write this is very impressive. Because... It takes takes some some balls. Yes, some bollocks. Yeah. (laughs) I would say over there, if I may say that. Yeah, I mean, this is just truly a uh, remarkable piece of, uh, of, of writing by Vincent Kennedy McMahon to just lie through his teeth like that. Because I've got news for you, folks. Uh, he didn't mean anything. He just wrote. <laughs> yeah, that was about as honest as Hulk and Arsenio, as it turns out. It seems that lying is the theme of the business here during this uh, this two-month period. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, let's get back to the ring, though, shall we? So we've yes. got this sidebar. It all kind of works out, like you mentioned. He only missed a couple days. Vince smooths everything over. Um, you know, people who are following the product at the time know that there's a big angle uh, that we have to talk about that was going on in the August of 1991. So... The Warrior getting shoehorned into the match made in hell. We talked a little bit about this in part two. You know, how he had a hotter program at mm-hmm. this time with The Undertaker. But, you know, he's getting moved off that into Hogan's deal with Slaughter. And it's the hottest program in the company, and it's about to get heated up even further. Indeed. Now, on TV, they – and we'll come to that, but – Jake, who was apparently not done with the the kind of earthquake, natural disasters, Andre the Giant feud they kind of teased previously, they tape a bunch of stuff with him, obviously teaching the warrior not to fear death, burying him alive in the cemetery, things like that. We'll come to them in a second. Uh, Meltzer, as you know, good whole family, uh, wholesome family entertainment. My (laughs) guess is it will end up with Roberts as a heel, says Dave. Yeah, Dave should have ended that sentence with, trust me, that's a missed opportunity. Yeah, these, uh, these, I mean, I, we'll, get, we'll get to them. It's coming up very shortly, but there's some comments for these, these classics. <laughs> um, yes, and obviously, like you say, um, I mean, these were all pre-taped. These aired during the period where Warrior wasn't really around that much. 
Um, and I guess they kind of got lucky in that sense. There really wasn't anything with Warrior in front of a live crowd after the promo with him and Hogan where Sid comes in. Everything was, was backstage, or it was this. Um, yes. Yeah, so it, did, yeah, it didn't affect it at all. They just could do this. It was weird how they kept referring to these, like, the day that these angles were talking about were taking place, like, during the week. They're yeah. like, you know, Warrior and Jake will get together again on Thursday. They kept saying that. I'm like, what? What? On Thursday? <laughs> but they're, like, airing it on, like, a Saturday. It was very weird that they were acknowledging that these were not taking place, like, live, mm. I thought. I don't know if you caught that. I don't know. No, I missed they, that. They, they, oh, yeah, for the third one, they, they very, they, two or oh, three the third times, one they, for sure. Okay. The, the, they said the it was like on Thursday. Okay. Yeah, the last one I remember, because yeah, to me that one stuck out like a sore thumb, because they hit that one pretty hard, because obviously that's the, that's the climax of the angle. Um, the end of Jake's involvement with the natural disasters comes when they try to squash Lucifer, the disasters. Uh, I think it's like a, it's a tugboat, no, sorry, a typhoon, excuse me, Jake Roberts match, but Andre, when they're trying to squash Lucifer, does the world's slowest run in, and I use that term liberally, uh, on crutches. Yeah, that match was on primetime wrestling for the record, and I am shocked that Typhoon got away with mocking Andre on crutches. Mm. Now, you talk about that slow run, and like, like Typhoon was kind of like doing this thing, like, oh, look at crippled Andre. I don't know, people, they can check out the video if they want to see it of this uh, primetime yeah. wrestling match, but yeah, I'm, I'm surprised Andre didn't like, you know, give him a cheap shot with a crutch or something. <laughs> the Warrior Roberts angle does begin, and actually begins with Jake on the funeral parlor. Uh, offering to show Warrior the dark side to help him against the Undertaker, and 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 Bear is pretty fucking hokey here with the whole you, know, you wouldn't do that, would you? And and you know just classic Paul Bearer. Uh, first, obviously, he goes in the coffin, and, and Jake closes the lid. Second, he's buried alive. <laughs> this being the Warrior, not Paul. The Bearer, Warrior. Yeah. I'm assuming. I'm assuming, assuming most people have seen these angles. They're I'm obviously pretty saying. famous. A a wrestle crap induction, in fact. Let's just focus on the first two. What did we think of this? Hey. <laughs> it's fucking awful. But I, I am amused because it's just like the whole way through, it's like, look at Jake playing this fucking idiot. You know where it's going. You know where it's going. And it's just it's just so funny that he just completely, like, he just willingly goes along with all of this, only for Jake to just completely fuck him in the end. It's hilarious. Yeah, did... Obviously, you know, it's one thing when you know where the angle is going, but did it feel a little too obvious that this was a heel turn and Warriors came across as stupid? Um, I'd like to say yes, but to me that's kind of a bit of, I, I'm looking at it with a retrospective take. I didn't see this in real time. Okay. So I, 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 I see it that way. I'm not, I'm not sure how – I mean, hey, ask you. What did you think when you saw it playing out? I was just kind of confused in real time mm. when I was watching this. Like, I was like – is Jake being a dick? Like, what's going on? Like, I, I probably didn't use those terms at the time, but, like, I was like, you know, he's kind of being, like, mean to the warrior. Like, I don't get this. I, I, what is the dark side? What value is this to the warrior? His feud with the Undertaker? So, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, when the angle does climax and Undertaker walks out and it's, it's a ruse, I was like, what? But I, they, they clarify it, um, you know, in subsequent interviews, but I, I want to talk about these first two segments a little bit more because I have a lot of notes. <laughs> oh, the Warriors grunting while he's in the casket was like, uh... like yeah, it's like, what? <laughs> like, it was really taking away from the angle. Um, and then you had, you know, Jake, uh, you know, trying to convince the Warrior to go in the casket on the first one. And it really felt like he was describing getting high. Or was that me? <laughs> there was a lot of, like, let it in, lay back, 
Let it take over you, warrior. <laughs> like, you know, have you ever seen the movie Traffic? Yes. It's like an Academy Award winner like 20 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it felt like, you know, like when Topher Grace is teaching Julia Stiles about freebasing. You know, they're sitting there like, just like, just lay back and let it take over, man. Like, I was like, what is this? <laughs> but my favorite quotes, and I guess you had it marked down too, yeah. was, was Jake's like, if you don't want to fight this man, I got better things to do. <laughs> Which, to that point, I'm just hearing from beyond the map, two at a time with toys. Two at a time and I'll just watch. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, I, I did not even think of that. That's <laughs> That's stuff right the there. first thing I thought. Oh, man. But, like, the second one is even cheesier. you got that music in the graveyard when they're walking around. Warrior keeps calling Jake Snake Man, <laughs> which is odd. Um, and he does it the third one, too. Are you sure, Snake Man? I don't know, Snake Man. <laughs> um, it was just bizarre. And, you know, when Warrior comes back in 92, there's obviously the horrible Papa Shango feud. And Warrior, we know, had a lot of input on that right and this just feels like something that he would have had a lot of input on you figure jake would have too and i mean jake does a good job with his parts but it's pretty hokey stuff yeah. and, um it, you know yeah i mean you watch it it's just kind of just poorly acted it, it's when wwf tries getting outside of its boundaries it never does well yeah this is the kind of thing you can kind of see them doing well frankly today but like yes you, you, you know, much later where they do these kind of set pieces, I, I, I was kind of having like the flashbacks that kind of take a cane graveyard horseshit with the parents from 98 where they, where they, you know, but they really, I mean, this, this is, I mean, I don't want to say this is the first time because it's really not, but like, it feels like this is them, yeah, with the, you know, the music in the background, the, the overproduced nature of it. You made a note here where I, where I love to, when, when Warrior gets out the casket and then like, there's like the slow turn and just stares at me at home. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess he's supposed to be, like, mimicking The Undertaker, but it just looks really cheesy. Like, you don't think that. You're like, oh, my God. Like, why would they show this? Yeah, it's not good. Uh, obviously, those are the first two. We're building up for the last one, and they do a bit where Jake, who is still obviously a babyface at this point, comes down to the studio to wish Randy Savage well for the wedding, but his name isn't on the list of people that are allowed to go and see the couple. Which Now, was yeah. this – this was on Primetime Wrestling. Was this yeah. the – Randy Savage bachelor party yes. episode because I okay I only saw that clip yeah it was the bachelor um, party and I did and it felt like out of place I was like well, I did not remember seeing this at all and uh, I wonder by this point Vince has I'm sure already made his decision what he's doing with the warrior are they already setting up an audible like with Jake and to have a reason to be kind of angry with Randy Savage. I have a theory on this, and I think okay. we'll, get to it, we'll get to it shortly. We'll get to it shortly. Okay. I actually, I think this is, I think this is placed with with a good bit of foresight. Okay. Um. Obviously, during this Warrior, sorry, Jake plugs the final Warrior trial, which is coming up, uh, and obviously it's the heel turn as Warrior goes into the room with snakes. He, he goes to the middle of the room, opens up a box, big snake, gets bit, falls on the ground, grunts some more. Uh, Taker shows up, revealing it was a setup all along. And, yeah, there's a lot of talk in the final two weeks of, of the some some hype about the snake bite, and that's kind of the explanation for why we don't see Warrior until the pay-per-view. As a climax, I mean, it was funny to see Warrior just kick the shit out of the snakes, I guess. But, uh, again... <laughs> he did. He did. He... What does Jake say when the snake bites him? Oh, you didn't like that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> 
It, it's something like that. It, again, it makes me laugh. Just like, you know, if you don't want to fight this, I got better things to do. So, yeah. okay. Our thoughts on the turn. We kind of tease this a little bit. Um, was it obvious that Jake was going heel? I don't really know if it was obvious. It was just sort of a confusing thing. And yeah, so Warrior gets bit in this bizarre, like, you know, he just walks into a dark room. Jake turns the lights on. Uh, there's just snakes all around. Yeah, Warrior kicks the shit out of the one. Um, and, you know, this cobra bites him out of a box. It is, that is the cheesiest shot ever. Oh, and this, when he opens this the box, snake comes yes. He's like, yes, fresh meat. And he just, like, by a warrior goes into this ridiculous oversell of the snake bite. Um, <laughs> and shades of uh, where to Stephanie years later, you know. I, I was expecting to say that to the warrior. Yes, where to, where to Elwood. Yes. That's exactly the way it's done, like, with, with the cut um, from the camera. But warrior crashes through the door of this room outside. And he's, like, asking Jake for help. Jake's, like, ranting at him. And then, yeah, you see this boot step up, and it's The Undertaker. And Undertaker and Jake Roberts have uh, been in cahoots, apparently, this entire time. This was a way to get uh, at the Ultimate Warrior and continue the Undertaker-Ultimate Warrior feud, which was already hot. Did, did this do an effective job of heating that angle up? I mean, you've got now Jake Roberts as a part of it. Uh, I feel like it was a good move it, it felt like the focus on you know, warrior take a focus on television seemed to kind of be settling down a little bit so it did feel like it reheated it a good bit i didn't i didn't really appreciate the rock forklift cam-esque moment when we see through the warrior's eyes as jake stands with taker looking down on us that was a another one of those weird wf cuts that they like to do but and again kind yes. of a, a bit of an anomaly as well in the sense that like it's a turn not in front of a crowd and not with the announcers to sell it as it's going on so I can understand that kind of confusion about, like, what the hell is going on? Like, what is this? That's a really good point about it not taking place in front of the live crowd with the announcer selling it. Can we think of another major heel turn, or baby face turn even for that matter, that they had done previous to this in a pre-taped setting? Uh, <laughs> I could think of was one of your favorites, the old Ken Patera. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and that didn't get over, did it? No, it did not. But even that, like... That wasn't really a turn, that was like a reintroduction. Yeah, it was, and like they were selling it very much, like with, you know, Bobby Heenan. Mm. Um, you know, he'd comment on them afterwards. And it was it was very clearly designed. I mean, I guess The Undertaker walking out is like, you know the hammer over the head, hey, Jake Roberts is a heel now. But it is interesting that, yeah, they didn't do this very often. I can compare it to, as, as I'm thinking, like, even in, like, future times, is the infamous Randy Orton burning the shack down. Oh, Jesus. With Ray Wyatt, remember? And that was kind of confusing, like, if he was, like, okay, was this, like, a heel move, or is this a baby face move that he's doing? Mm. Remember? Like, I think that's actually kind of a fair comparison. Yeah, because he, he, he was kind of tagged with Bray for so long, then all of a sudden he burns his house down. It's like, well, that doesn't really seem all that endearing. Yeah, yeah keep in mind, that was a babyface move. <laughs> so that yeah. was even maybe more confusing, and, and way shittier, too, than this. <laughs> now, they do do a TV taping on August 19th, which is supposed to air after SummerSlam, where Gene Oakland does an interview with Jake Roberts, where we apologize for what happened with the Warrior, and he asks for everyone to forgive him. The fans do apparently forgive him. And then Jake turns heel on Gene and kind of rips him up a bit and leaves laughing as, as, as a prick. This one doesn't air. 
Okay, thank you, because I did not see it. And I was I, I was rewinding the damn collection of clips we had. I was like, where did, did I miss this? What What is going on? There was a lot of other Jake interviews there where he was, you know, cutting promos on the Warrior with the Snake. Um, and, yeah, I, I guess I kind of assumed after a while that this was something that they just scratched because of what we're about to get to and that this taping, you know, was uh, post-SummerSlam stuff. Uh, but regardless, I think we would agree that this is the start of the best run of Jake's career. Absolutely. And him being a heel uh, was long overdue. And people could check out our 1990 discussion uh, the summer when we had – back then we were talking about, eh, you know, maybe Jake should go heel at this point. Mm-hmm. He, he had been politicking for it all year, and he finally gets his chance. And he hit it out of the park. Yes, he does. He absolutely does. Uh, so, okay. Let's now – we've gone through this angle here. We've gone through – the build-up to the match made in hell uh, previous. To me, there is a pretty obvious alternate main event for SummerSlam 91 here. Is there mm-hmm. not? Yes, there is. And that would be Hogan and Warrior against Slaughter, Jake, and Undertaker. If you want to do two on three. Now, ideally, uh, it would be Hogan and Warrior against Jake and Undertaker, and you just get rid of this Slaughter altogether. You could just kill that <laughs> off the house show. But... You know, Slaughter could still be there to take the fall because you need, you're not going to beat Jake right after no. the turn, and you're certainly not going to pin the Undertaker, and the babyfaces aren't going to lose. They just didn't do that in 1991. Um, you know, the logistics uh, of that main event, I think you could do the Jake angle earlier in the summer, and he and Undertaker are the only ones evil enough to team up with Sarge. Yeah. I think that works, and again, Sarge takes the fall. You can tease Hogan and Undertaker, which was probably at this point already on the books for Survivor Series because they planned out so far in advance. So um, you talk about intrigue. I mean, that hypothetical blows what they did out of the water, in my opinion. And I know a lot of people, uh, that's not a unique take just to me. I know that there's other people in the past who have always said, Man, this ad man and Mustafa had no business in a pay-per-view main event. Why not go with Jake Undertaker in their place? It's completely logical. Get some interesting heels in the mix with Hogan, who sorely needed, uh, you know, in terms of just you know, something fresh. What would you do with Sid in that situation? You could do something at the end of the match where Warrior disappears with Jake and Undertaker. Mm-hmm. And Hogan still gets his pin on Slaughter, and he still does the post-match with Sid. Like, it would be the same exact thing. I think you'd just have a more intriguing main event because, you know, the actual match made in hell, let's just get this out of the way, it ends exactly as you expected. Hogan pinning Slaughter after he throws powder in his face, real baby face move there. (laughs) Um, And there is just no heat for that match at (laughs) all. I I, I don't know if you watched it again. Okay. I mean – I mean, there's just – the crowd's just not reacting. Like, Hulk a couple times is on the ring apron trying to do, you know, some of the old tricks to get the crowd going. They're just not buying it, man. They just – that heels team was just so weak. No one bought them at all uh, having a chance to win. I mean, Sid got, I think, the best reaction on the show, to, which, again, to the point that he was the most intriguing thing. Yeah. I mean, it is, not, it is no exaggeration to say that the opening match on the show seems more heated than the main event. Yes, that's that's accurate. I think um, now, I mean, it did follow IRS Greg Valentine, but still, oh, fair, fair enough. Yeah, main events should be able to pick it up after that. I mean, that you know, they put it's called a cooldown match for a reason. It's so the crowd can get back up for the main event. They just they didn't in that regard. Um, 
So Hogan and Sid pose at the end of the match made in hell. <laughs> we need to talk about this. Yes, we do. Because Sid's ridiculous coming back to the ring, like, who, me? You want me to pose with you? <laughs> it's just so silly. Like, you know, Hulk's, uh, like, motion to the back. H- Hogan's the only one in the ring because Warriors chased off Adnan and Mustafa. Sid's gone. And, like, Sid peeks his face out the curtain. And I had visions. Didn't Hogan do that same thing yes, when Savage yes, called him out? Okay. So that's, like, a Vince must have loved that. A move when Hogan did that, or Hogan told Sid to do it. Um, it was for SummerSlam '88, right? When Warriors yeah. like, I've got the best partner, and like Hogan peeks out, and it's like, oh my god, it's Hulk, and he does this same silly who me routine. Um, and you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like, no asshole, he's talking to Rene Goulet at ringside. What do you think? Yeah. yeah, and Sid, he's just, I love him. God bless him. He's like so confused on his way back to the ring. He's like. Does this guy want me to pose with them? He's just like looking at the crowd, just really overselling it. And they pose, and um, you know, again, something we said earlier didn't look like Sid was really, uh, you know, off not the gas take, at this point. No, not taking those warnings that seriously. That does remind me, actually, what talking about his ridiculousness. He did a promo with Gene right before SummerSlam when he walks out with the McMahon endorsed babyface shit-eating grin, and I thought to myself, oh, it didn't take long. There it is. Big Sid, the killer, smiling like an asshole. Yeah, yeah they always, it's always smiling, you know, smiling Drew McIntyre, smiling Diesel. You know, if you win the world title as a babyface, pal, you're going to smile now that you're yeah. the champion. That's right. Warrior obviously conspicuous by his absence, and in the match made in heaven, which goes on last, uh, we get the wedding and, of course, the, the aftermath, which we see on television later. But a uh, bit of a say ballsy move, but uh, fans were leaving the building, apparently, as this was taking place. Yeah, ending a pay-per-view with a wedding is certainly a choice. Mm. I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I, I probably would have left. <laughs> I think, like, if I'm there, I'm like, I'm like, okay. I mean, because the thing is, in 1991, WWF was it enough of, like, an angle alert to get you? Like, if there's, like, weddings now are big TV rating straws, right? You, you yeah, put them on TV and they always do well in the ratings because the audience is trained to think something has happened. In 1991, was that the case? I, I, even if it wasn't, again, just from the initial fallout when Vince is, like, that's the thing that Vince has been much pushing, isn't it? It's an angle alert. It's yes. like, is anyone going to run in? Is anyone going to, is, is anything going to happen in this wedding? It's like, I don't know if people really would have been conscious enough to have thought that way at the time. Um, I don't know. That's, that's a tricky one. I'm, I'm trying to place my, my, my kiddie mind back on in terms of, like, did I think that way? I probably didn't. Yeah, well, there had only been one other TV wedding to this point <laughs> for WWF, and that was the Hillbillies on Saturday Night Live. Yes, yeah, Elmer. And that, yeah, Uncle Elmer. And that was interrupted by Piper, obviously. But, you know, I mean, is – Somebody, like, objecting enough to get you? Apparently, no. I mean, you know, Meltzer, I know, has said that there were some women in the crowd who really loved it. Um, you know, and they, they, of course, I, I loved actually going back to what the proposal angle. They showed, like, every couple possible in the crowd afterwards. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I, it, was, it, it was a weird way to end the pay-per-view proper. But the aftermath, and this was not shown until syndicated television over the weekend, obviously, is the big angle where Jake Roberts and The Undertaker crashed the reception and beat the hell out of Randy Savage, and Sid makes the save. 
Yes. Uh, now, and Enter comes in with his chair and he's kind of jabbing them away. This is actually a pretty damn good angle. Yes. Like, uh, and, and kind of feels feels out of nowhere if not for that thing that we talked about where Jake wasn't invited to the bachelor party, wasn't able to pass his regards, and so it seems that the malice is there, and I, I think this plays out real well. It does, and I want to actually table the discussion on this because there's an elephant in the room that we've got to get out of the way. Yes. Um, but I, I will tell one story before we get to the proverbial elephant in the room. So <laughs> it was great. Um, I'm sitting at home, not the current house we live in, but this was not long after we'd been married, uh, Cammie and I. And I'm sitting upstairs, and I'm doing work. And Cammie walks upstairs, she goes, what the hell is this? Somebody sent us this as a wedding gift. And it's this, like, wooden box, and when you twisted it, a snake popped out. <laughs> oh, it's tremendous. And I go, was it labeled? And she's like, I don't know. Let me check. I'm like, I guarantee you Chad said that. <laughs> and it was. Yes. He, so I, I received after my wedding a, a, a wooden box where a snake popped out. Yes. That was like, but it was funny. Like my cami killed the angle because obviously it meant nothing to her. You know, like something like, like Chad obviously wanted me to open it and laugh about it. But like she's just like, what is this stupid snake in a box? Like, what is So she just, like, killed the angle. So, yeah, before. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to steal that. Just so you know, if friends getting married, I'm stealing that. That's yeah, I'm great. sure, I'm sure. You no, know, Chad, I'm sure it was a real cheap gift, too. So, uh, <laughs> just kidding, Chad, if you're listening. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, obviously, we have to take the, the, the detour. The elephant in the room, of course, is the fact that charging oh. into the, the sun, the, uh, you know, the sunset is the ultimate warrior with a steel chair. Yes. So I need to ask you a question, Liam. Mm-hmm. The ultimate warrior, you said, conspicuous by his absence in the post-match pose down with Hogan and Sid. Whatever happened to the ultimate warrior? Did he ever catch Colonel Mustafa and General Andon? <laughs> well, apparently not, because as soon as he returned through the curtain, uh, presumably still running with a steel chair in his hands, he was met with a letter. <laughs> he, he was met with an envelope, and the contents, of which, the contents of which read as follows. As you know, on September 23rd, 1987, you signed a booking contract with Titan Sports. As the, at the time uh, you signed the contract, you were a relatively obscure wrestler with an enthusiastic professed desire to succeed. I, therefore, invested a substantial amount of time, money, and a sincere energy to develop your talents and person as a worldwide WWF superstar wrestler, such that you have been able to be successful and achieve stardom status throughout the world. Unfortunately, it now appears the fame that you have obtained through the efforts of Titan have gone to your head. Frankly, you have become impossible to work with and have completely forgotten your obligations to Titan and WWF fans, both ethically, professionally, and contractually, says Vince. Vince says that at the time of writing, Warrior has been paid over $1.3 million in the past 12 months and doesn't understand why Warrior is upset with that. Your principal complaint, continues Vince, apparently is that you are not being compensated at the same rate as Hulk Hogan, although Hulk is a living legend, is still much better known to the public, has wrestled longer, is the WWF champion, is in much greater demand for personal appearances, is a bigger star and draw at WWF events, is more dependable, and is far more revered and respected by WWF fans and by the public at large. 
Well, I guess that Vince's answer to the question of whether the Warrior meant the same as Hulk Hogan in 1991. <laughs> he uh, apparently has a much different take than our synopsis. A resounding no. You have become a legend in your own mind, says Vince. You are certainly not entitled to vent your feelings by breaching and threatening to breach your contract. hey Yeah, that's a classic for you. Uh, the term cited as being breached with a no-show dates without a legitimate cause, uh, that we mentioned before, not cooperating with the event booking department, threats to stay at home from advertised dates and his treatment of the fans, probably alluding to uh, the situation we talked about with that general manager's son. Vince then explains his perspective in the letter. Had I not agreed to your terms, then Titan would have lost its public credibility and goodwill and have been gravely harmed with cable companies and WWF fans who paid pay-per-view fees for SummerSlam. He then says that the July modifications to his deal in the July 13th letter won't be considered valid or binding because they were agreed to under duress. uh, The only thing missing here was that you are fired, I think. (laughs) Um, And yeah, this goes back to... Vince's just incredible stuff that he wrote in the previous letter we talked about. That's why we were laughing about how awesome it was, because it was all lies uh, when he acquiesced to Warrior's demands, or at least pretended to acquiesce just because, um, you know, at that time, changing pay-per-view main events was a big no-no, and he knew he had to get Warrior to the ring um, and obviously knew, um, you know, what he was going to do uh, afterwards. As a matter of fact, I believe it was on that uh, Hit Job DVD that WWE did. Yes. In the early 2000s, when I believe the quote Vince says, I couldn't wait to fire him. <laughs> and, Jim- and we would also be remiss if we did not talk about what Hulk Hogan claims. I was just about to talk about that. Okay, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Hogan. Hogan. When, as apparently Vince relays the story about how, you know, yeah, he's not cooperating. He's not cooperating. Hogan alleges that he was considering taking him into a room and stretching the ultimate warrior. With the Sheik. With the Sheik, oh yeah. Yeah, with Iron Sheik. He's like, what if we stretch him a little bit and show him the way? I mean, unbelievable. I don't think Sheik could stretch, period. Let alone stretch somebody else. Yeah, I don't think he could have touched his toes at that point. No, even with those boots. Yeah, no, no. There's nothing, there's nothing, by the way, speaking of where's the your fight, I was just waiting for a Jim screwed Jim at the end. Just because it's that, it's that type of one-sided. You are not, you are, you have no obligation, uh, to, you know, to, to complain about the, the contract or breach. However, I will. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. Here's why I don't think you have any, you know, reason to complain, but yeah, I, I, you're actually screwing me over in this situation. <laughs> yeah. Now, the Observer reports this by saying that Warrior, Jim Helwig, officially was put on a suspension of... Love the no- shoot names. I, 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 I know. I miss that. laugh better than when he just throws the shoot name in parentheses. I love that. I miss that. Uh, it was officially put on a suspension of no less than 90 days for unprofessional conduct, according to a Titan memo sent out on Tuesday. Three different company sources on Tuesday told us Warrior was fired after his match on Monday night. I believe the Summer's real... Summer's was on Monday night. Just, yes, just, yes, yes, yes. I believe the real story is that Warrior may not be returning, but the final decision probably hasn't been made yet and probably won't be made until a few months down the line. But there are definitely no plans at present for anything involving Warrior. At Vincent Mann's birthday party Tuesday night at NBC's Rainbow Room in New York, all the mentions of Warrior were as if he were history with the company. The only stories I've gotten were generalizations that Warrior wanted the same kind of financial deal and schedule as Hulk Hogan and Vincent Mann wasn't going to give it to him. There had been a story circulating after Warrior walked out and missed the television tapings a few weeks back that he was demanding a guaranteed contract of $1 million. When Warrior returned a few days later, the story going around the WWF dressing room was that Warrior got his deal. 
Uh, and it should be noted that Hogan, Warrior, and Savage all received $75,000 for SummerSlam, though Hogan was given an extra $15,000 as a bonus as well. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and by the way, during the commentary of the match made in hell, Warrior was, like, so de-emphasized by oh, Gorilla, like you Eden, and that. Piper. Yeah, I mean, they weren't even talking about him at all. It was just basically like, oh, you know, they would mention him by name only when they had to, like if he was actually involved in the action. So, um, yeah, there you have it. The Ultimate Warrior, I guess you could say fired. He he does come back, of course, in 1992, but he's gone for the fall of 91. He's gone for, let's see, September, October, November, December, four months. He's gone for like seven months, basically. Yeah. And, um he comes back because they needed him when when Hogan uh left ironically enough. Um okay, let's do an autopsy on the ultimate warrior. Even <laughs> though he comes back, shall we? Cuz I mean, right? I mean, he's been a main topic of conversation in not just the 1991 series but the 1990 series. So he obviously becomes more expendable with the arrivals of Sid Justice and Ric Flair, you know, again, we're not getting to that today, but I think everyone knows um, that Ric Flair comes to WWF around this time. Uh, But with Hogan's reputation taking a hit around this time, was firing the Warrior a mistake? Or was it just a situation where, all right, this guy's just untenable. Fuck him. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, uh, you know, with Savage coming back as well, I can see why they felt they had the room to yes. do it, especially because you can sense their belief that Warrior isn't the difference maker that Hogan is, which may be misplaced, but it's clearly what they think. Um, well, you know, again, I, I think to be clear, it's just that I think the way we should phrase it, because I've been thinking about it in the back of my head for the last 15 minutes, is Hogan is no more of a difference maker than Warrior in yeah. 91. I think that's the best way to phrase it. That's, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um I think it was a bigger gamble than they probably thought, because as we saw, Vince thought that so long as he had Hogan, he'd be fine. And I think... He's, Shades I, I, of Eric Bischoff in 1998. Yeah, exactly. I, and, I'll, and I'll throw this in here, because... Actually, you know what? No, I won't. I'll, I'll, I'll wait for it. But I, I, I do think that it was a mistake, because... And again, I'm not, I'm not dealing with the interpersonal things. I, I can see why the whole idea of not wanting to upset the apple cart and, and not... you know. Hey, maybe it was a deal where Warrior was was so impossible to work with, but at the same time, it's like I don't want to. I, I almost don't want to sound like I'm endorsing Warrior, <laughs> but at the same time, considering what had happened with Hogan in the prior month and how unstable that was, and I don't know where at this point in time they had to be a little bit fearful about what was going on with Hogan. And I don't know if in some way they saw Warriors a neon sign for, for steroid trouble. Yeah, or... and that's the thing, because, y- y- you know, that's, again, you talk about elephants in the room. Mm. With this steroid issue, it's not like the steroid issue would not have reached the Ultimate Warrior. It would have eventually got there, and, and he probably would have dealt with it far worse, even though he <laughs> dealt with it terribly. I couldn't only imagine what Warrior would have been like on these talk shows had he tried. <laughs> yes, yes, I don't, I don't, there was a few, there was a joke I was going to make, I'm not going to. <laughs> So, okay, um, how would he have fit in in the fall of 91? So we know the plan was for him and Jake. My question is, what would the match made in heaven direction have been had the warrior not left? Would would he have been the guy to save Savage instead of Sid? Yes, 
Yes, that is exactly earlier on when I was talking about my theory that I was going to get to. That was it. The idea to me is that obviously the duo, Jake and Warrior get, sorry, Jake and Taker get Warrior first. They do that tease when they did, presuming probably that Warrior was still going to be around, even though I don't know what time, what, yeah, exactly the timeline when Vince decided he was going to can the Warrior. But just the nature, again, Jake's talking about Warrior and all the promos leading up to SummerSlam. So the, the, crossover with Savage to me leads to a very WWF scenario where the two enemies previously Warrior and Savage have to kind of come together to deal with them even to the point of maybe Warrior having to be the one to reinstate Savage because he's the one that beat him yes and I was thinking about that too would Warrior have been a better Savage surrogate than Sid was based on the history like it's kind of a little less believable. Because, like, Sid, you're just introducing this baby face, and you're just, but, you know, he's just a guy that thinks justice needs to be served, like, in all corners, right? And he's just here to, <laughs> you know, have justice at weddings and justice in pay-per-view <laughs> and events. Whereas Warrior, I think there would have been something, you know, there would have been a deeper thing there because of the history with Savage. Like, him saving Savage based on the feud earlier in the year, you know, there would have been a depth to that that Sid just didn't offer mm-hmm. in that role. So I, I think it's interesting, would he have been the one? Has that ever come out? I'm not sure, but to, I, I don't even know if it's really anybody's really explored before. But to me, that feels like that's clearly what they're building. I think the question that becomes, if you keep the word, what do you do with Sid? Especially because, they were, as we're going to get to, they were going to go straight to Hogan and Flair. So I guess... Yes. If it wasn't for the fact that they'd released this T-shirt that was apparently so important, I'd probably have had Slaughter, you know, pissed off that he, you know, didn't side with him and have Sid just kill him and, and blow that off. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny just the way things work out. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, it, you know, while, while business goes down the tubes, I think creatively things kind of like all work out where, um, you know, Sid's the surrogate for, you know, Warrior leaves. Sid's the surrogate in the Savage feud with Jake. Then Sid gets hurt, and Mm -hmm. and Savage comes back. So it it all winds up being kind of clean. I I think it's just, you know, it's interesting where, you know, they would have had to find, like you said, something to do with Sid. Opposed to the slaughter thing makes sense. It's not particularly inspiring (laughs) uh, for either of us, but it's probably what they would have done. But no matter what he does, he's going to be third banana anyway, because nothing was going to overshadow Hogan and Flair, and, and, and the, the TV time behind Warrior and Savage, Jake and Taker, there was nothing Sid was going to do that was going to be comparable anyway, I don't and, think. And does it matter, actually? Because the plan, it, se- it seems, was always just to turn Sid heel, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, and work Hogan at WrestleMania. Like, that's what they promised him when he came in. So, you know how well you establish Sid as a babyface, it kind of doesn't matter in the sense that he gets hurt anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he's turning heel anyway. So, it, I don't know. It's interesting. It would, it would be one more big name in a period where, you know, and we'll get to it. I, I think it's going to be a key talking point. WF programming got a lot better in the fall of 91. So um, that's one thing, I guess, that maybe doesn't uh, speak too well to the Warrior that, you know, while – Business did not go up. It actually went down after he leaves. And again, there's a lot of outside forces at play mm-hmm. there. Um, I don't know if you you agree with me on that, but I I love the fall of '91. It feels very fresh, like a lot like 
a lot of new characters were introduced, new feuds, main event scene kind of expands to include more people. It's not just Hogan and whoever he's feuding with. Um, I like it quite a bit. Yeah, and when you look at it from that perspective, as we will get to, it certainly shapes up for a very nice beginning of 1992 by having so many... Yeah, a main event scene that feels like you've got actually, rather than just, you know, your top guy and the opponent you've been building up, you've now got this kind of menagerie of guys who are like, you've got some, some guys who feel like long-term players at the top. Yeah, and I mean, Ric Flair falling into your lap, obviously. Again, that's something we're going to talk about in part mm-hmm. 3B in great detail is like, yeah, I just think it was a case the Warrior was a problem backstage. Vince didn't like problems. Uh, during this time period, and he became expendable. So yes. here's a couple big picture questions I've got for you. Was the WWF better, worse, or no different in 1991 versus if the Warrior had just been turned heel and fed to Hogan at WrestleMania six? Man, that's so hard. Um, it may be a wash in the sense that it is better then had Hogan just beaten the heel Warrior. Because, Warrior, as we said at the time, Hogan was getting stale anyway. And Warrior was hot when they did it. It's worse, yeah. it's worse in the sense that what they did positively, they've just undone. <laughs> like, any, any kind of good that you can say came from the Warrior and what was given to him in beating Hogan, even if it didn't pay dividends immediately, which it didn't and we talked about, they're at the point now where they actually, you know, they're running two house shows with two big main events that are doing fairly well, one better than the other. But now that's gone anyway. So at this point, with Warrior being gone, I think that they're better off in the sense that I do think Hogan feels fresher at this point than he would have done had he just steamrolled through Warrior and gone to the next thing. Yeah, it's so interesting. And if you do that with Warrior, we talked about how there was no number three babyface at all in the mm. company in 1990. I mean, if you turn Warrior heel and just beat him, like just do the old Hogan formula, you know, Hulk must pose at the end, Hulk goes over, we're sticking with Hulk. You just have, like, no depth. I mean, they had nothing anyway. 1990. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have any. I mean, depth was an issue in 1990. So if you turn, like, and what do you do? In our, like, do you continue Hogan? Warriors like a house show program in the late spring, early summer. I mean, it's that's such a big picture blow up. It's hard to envision. Um, I I kind of think it's like business wise, it wouldn't have been much of a. Eh, I don't know. I kind of think it was worse. I, I think you had to try somebody, and I know this one A one B thing didn't really work, but I don't know if you could put that on Hogan and Warrior as much as. You know, we've talked about this before. The they heels. just could never find two over enough heels concurrently, right? No. I mean, it was Hogan had Earthquake, Warrior was stuck with Rude. Then, you know, Warrior got Savage, but Hogan got Slaughter. Then, you know, Hogan kept going with Slaughter and Warrior got Undertaker. So they never had two hot heels, which is, I think, a big reason why it never worked, more so than kind of trying, you know, the 1A, 1B babyface act. And to that point... And this is something um, that I would not have asked 20 years ago. But, you know, we're, you know, in this modern era where very few performers mean a lot to the bottom line if you put their name on the marquee, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you talked about, like, this thought that, like, Brock Lesnar's a huge draw when really there's kind of no evidence of that um, post 
2013 or something, right? Mm-hmm. So how many times post Austin Rock? Because that's obviously the all-time great top two babyface scenario. But Absolutely. In company history. Has there been a stronger number two babyface than the Ultimate Warrior was in 1991? Yeah. Cena Batista is about the closest I could think I, of. That came to my head as well. Yeah, I think that's tough. I, I, that may be close. Okay, well, here's a thing, and sometimes you need context, okay? So, the Ultimate Warrior, this run, it was always kind of judged as a failure, right? Growing up, like, you know, you get, I mean, real time, you're on the internet discussion, oh, yeah, 1990 wasn't very good, why wasn't it good? Well, they tried Warriors Champion, it didn't work. So, he gets that reputation, but let's go back in time 20 years, okay, and look at the history of the WWF. Okay, the period between Hulk Hogan and Steve Austin is really not that big, right? It's like, you not know, it's like five years. Yeah. Just whatever. I mean, people can choose what they want. But, you know, and so everybody that was tried on top in those five years in between, whether it was like Warrior or Bret Hart, or Shawn Michaels, or whoever, was kind of just viewed unfavorably. And it was very easy to do that because you were comparing them to Hulk Hogan and Steve Austin. <laughs> yep. Right? And they, like, none of those guys, and some of them have, you know, more exploits than others, but they very clearly were not on the same level as Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin. So everyone was judged by that standard. Well, other than John Cena in the last 20 years, who didn't get to Hogan or Austin levels, in my opinion, no one has gotten to that level. So instead of like, you know, how you, it was so easy to judge Warrior negatively because of like this five year period versus two boom periods, look at the last 20 years and how really only one guy has gotten to the tippy top level. All of a sudden, like for me, when I go back and look, I'm like, you know, okay, Warrior, Brett, Sean, whomever, they, they didn't draw as much as like the all time greats or even going back pre Hogan. You know, like Backland, mm-hmm. San Martino, but at least they were like put in positions where like they had to draw. Yeah. Right? Like the, the promotion was actually, as opposed to now, where the promotion isn't really built around a performer, it's built around the brand. Mm. So, you know, yeah. So I just <laughs> think that that's like the interesting thing with the Warrior is like his, you know, his epitaph was like kind of written. You know, at a time when if you weren't Hulk Hogan, Steve Austin, Bob Backlund, Bruno San Martino, you sucked. <laughs> but there haven't been many of those guys in the last 20 years. So retroactively, you look back. I mean, my God, if Vince McMahon would murder Shane to have Ultimate <laughs> Warrior be his second world <laughs> champion right now, wouldn't he? If, like, I mean, if Hogan was the Raw champion, he, I mean, and Warrior was the SmackDown champion, if you if you walked into, you know, Vince's office right now with the silly dinosaur bones and we're like, hey, Vince, you know, <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if, like, Hogan was Raw champion and Warrior respect the champion? You'd freaking have an orgasm oh, right love in it. front of you. You know, he'd be like, I mean, compared to what they trot out today. So, again, I mean, I don't want to, like, you know, make it seem like the Ultimate Warrior is some great guy or some great performer, but I just think he was judged, you know, kind of by the by the times and, you know, now with, you know, in the – 21st century he doesn't look as bad i think in retrospect no i agree with that i think that it's 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 tougher i actually in when you really look at it 
as we have done over the course of several podcasts here, talk about you know, from the start of 1990 when the move was obviously you know made to get Warrior in this position as a headliner, trying to fill the shoes of Hogan. That is like you know when Austin gets injured and they stick Rock in that position, and Rock had a lot of momentum going in. When we make that comparison, Austin Rock is a more successful version of Hogan Warrior. Yes. And and just when, when you hold those two up like that, Warrior looks like the weak link. And, and like you say, he gets eulogized as a failure. That was always the thing. Like even, you know, like you say, growing up, becoming a wrestling fan, it just looks that way anyway, just from the fact that they went back to Hogan the way they did. Irrespective, and, and it's the reason why I wanted to do this series so bad, is the fact that Warrior didn't actually really fail that badly. He failed during a period of time when he really wasn't ever going to succeed. But when it came to, you know, the fall of 1990, moving into the spring and, 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 and the feud with, with Taker, I, you know, it, written as a failure seems pretty harsh compared to the fact that Hogan, who had had, and it's, it's very easy once you've had that big, big, big success to fail and for people to kind of regard you the way you once were. I'd say, yeah, Warrior in 91, stronger than Brett, stronger than Sean. Yes. I mean, yeah, because business falls way off. Um, exactly. You know, after this, you know, we'll talk about that when we get to the SummerSlam number, how it was kind of like the last um, reasonable number that they did for a long time. But, yeah, I just think that it, it, it's a really interesting thing to look where things, you know, as I've gotten older, Liam, in my wrestling kind of, I, I look at things in, in less black and white terms where I'm like, this is, like, fucking great. That fucking sucked. Like, I, I'm not as much like that anymore where it's kind of like, I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, obviously there are things that are just absolutely tremendous and you should gush over, and there are things that absolutely suck ass and you should rip. But a lot of times things that you remember as being great sometimes maybe have some holes. Things that aren't remembered as fondly sometimes, you know, were maybe a little bit, you know, uh, were critiqued a little too harshly. And, you know, again, he was never going to be as big as Hogan. It's ridiculous to think that that could have happened, but he could have been booked better during this time period, and I think he meant just as much as Hogan did in 1991. So um, back to your original question. At the start of 1990, when we did this podcast series, Necessary Sacrifice, yes, Hogan was getting stale in the beginning of 90. Uh, beginning of the end, it was, but it didn't have to be. No, not at all. Uh, I mean, as we're going to get to when we get to part four of this, like, it, the end, it didn't matter what they did with the Warrior. I mean, that's, I guess, the kicker. I mean, even if they had booked the Warrior to perfection in this time period, the company was going to fall off because of the outside, the ring stuff, the steroid <laughs> stuff. And then obviously it, it gets you know even worse early 92. So it's kind of like, I guess it doesn't matter. If they that they didn't book him well because they were going to fall off, but they certainly could have booked him better. And I think WWF could have done a better business in 1990 and 1991 than it did. And keep in mind, they exploited a war. Yeah, that wasn't you know that's not on the Warrior. And, and I think that's it too. It's one of those things. I mean, me and you, Carl, we talk about this a lot. The the stream of consciousness in the moment takes when you see something playing out in real time as opposed to just stepping back being a little more detached and just trying to see the big picture of not just there and then but the big picture of where you've been before and, and where you would like to be in future and what the what the real perspective is and, and warrior very much feels like a victim of that that, that that during that time period where he had a lot of things going against him and when you you know you think about it when he was you know, he was 
pretty much iced with a rude feud for a long time, and he still came out kicking. Yeah, with, with the Savage feud, doing well with Slaughter, doing well with Taker. I, I I do feel like big picture in the grand scheme of things, Warrior probably doesn't deserve the shit he gets as a failure. Yeah, I, I just think that you know, like anything else, things can't maintain a certain level of popularity. No. And the, you know, again, big picture, the WWF just could not maintain its level of popularity from, like, 1984 to 1989. It just gets to a point where it's like Hulk Hogan was obviously the major reason for that popularity. And you're not going to be able to replace him. But at the same time, he's, like, people are just going to get sick of Hulk Hogan. And it was, I think, you know, people don't factor that into the equation as much when they look at 1990 and 1991 that people were getting sick of Hulk Hogan. Yeah. To a certain degree. Um, and, you know, that, you know, hurt just as, like, that was every bit as, you know, integral to the situation as Warrior not being the next Hogan, um, that why the company did how it did. Yeah, this is a fad. Uh, you know, in wrestling, when it's popular, it's going to be a fad. It's going to be like American Gladiators. It's going to be like, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's going to be like Power Rangers. It's, it's every other thing that comes through. Hey, they, 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 they hold their hand up and said for years, including Hogan on a senior hall. Hey, this is entertainment, folks. Entertainment. <laughs> entertainment is the same across the board. Things are going to get hot and things are going to cool off. And when they cool off, Hogan always seems to try and get out of the way. But the fact is, Warrior did not tank things to a degree where this couldn't have been, like you said, this it, it didn't it wasn't great, but it didn't have to be as bad as it ended up, and that's kind of the key. Yeah, I mean, it, he's better than Kevin Nash. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what, what that says. I mean, that's kind of a real rousing endorsement. But you know, I mean, like you know, we ran through all those scenarios. Uh, in 1990 that they could have done to give him some more juice, <laughs> pun intended, I guess, uh, you know, after he wins the title, but they didn't do it. I mean, a, st- a stale feud, a stale first feud, and the shadow of Hogan, I think, just kind of inevitably doomed Warrior. But, you know, he did fine in 91, and he became expendable, and, you know, quite frankly, he kind of becomes an asshole anyway, so maybe we should stop saying nice things about him. <laughs> yeah, fuck him, he's gone. Yeah, so, yeah. And that's it for part 3A. Now, obviously, in part 3B of this series, the next show we're going to do, we're going to be talking all about Ric Flair leaving World Championship Wrestling, his, in, his, his not yet arrival, but the introduction of Ric Flair and what's going to be on WWF television, which obviously is extremely intriguing. All the backstage machinations that take place there are just hilarious to go through. I can't wait to talk about Flair. And, of course... Looking at the rest of this promotion, heading into SummerSlam uh, with, with everything that was going on elsewhere in the card, and it's it's, it's going to be interesting to talk about that because not as many big angles lead to this SummerSlam as we'll talk about, but coming out of the show, as you say, television gets a hell of a lot better. Yeah, it does, and I can't wait to talk about that, like why that happened. I, I just think it's kind of a freshness thing you know it's kind of the opposite of WWE today where people just oh this guy's still around it's like it just felt like wow we've got a lot of new people and new uh positions and it, and it worked well but yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about the undercard uh of SummerSlam and of course obviously Ric Flair's arrival to Titan Sports <laughs> and with that said we are pretty much completely out of time so I do want to thank everybody for listening this far Kyle as always an absolute pleasure to go through 1991 with you 
Hope this is worth the time, man. Hope this is worth the uh, this odyssey that we've been on. I am loving every bit of this. I am too, and people uh, can go. Of course, you were so kind uh, to donate your time to uh, my podcast, Top Rope Nation. People can check out your interview on the uh, Brian Pillman documentary and how that measured up to your wonderful book that you wrote. And yeah, uh, it, it's it's right there. If you head over uh, uh, Top Rope Nation, our last episode uh, with Liam, it was a real hoot to interview him on that subject. So with that said... Thank you very much, Kyle. It's going to be a blast talking to you again. Part 3B is coming up, and we will be uh, joined by all of you, hopefully, for that as well. So thank you very much. I am Liam O'Rourke. For Kyle Ross, we are out of here. Take care. You've got to learn the Undertaker's way, brother. It's the dark side, the snake side, if you can understand. So my man, trust me. Look at me, warrior. Sam, Sam, brother. I'm not going to fight you for this. If you don't want to know, brother, i got something else to do. I'm not going to fight you. If you want to learn, you'll lay down and you'll relax and accept it, man. Take that walk. you got to walk it alone. I can show you the path, but I can't walk along and hold your hand. So if you're ready, warrior, as ugly as it feels, as bad as it smells, release it. Release it. Come on, open up your soul, brother, and let the snake in. Come on, come on, where are you going, man? You think you're going to find the puzzle, put it all together without doing this? I know, I've been there, I've walked on that side, man. If you're going to get to heaven, you've got to go through hell. Take it easy. So trust me, my friend. Trust me and let me show you. Oh, nice and easy, easy. It's nice and slow, see? Nice and slow. First piece of the puzzle, my man. Just the first piece. Feel it. Maybe you've gone long enough. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Not quite. I mean, if you're going to go for it, man, go all the way. Take it to the limit, right? Then two at a time. Then two at a time with toys. Then two at a time with... I'll just watch. (laughs) 